So I was in total denial that I was sick because I, I didn't understand that your brain can get injured just like your knee. I just, I didn't understand that. And so I was of the mindset as I had always been in my life that I needed to keep pressing forward and fix all on my own, whatever it was that I was feeling. And then I started to have these even darker thoughts. And that's when I felt like I understood my mom in a way that I never wanted to understand her. Like I, it's, you have these thoughts that like you want to die and it was terrifying because I always I've always been afraid my whole life for the moment that that might happen to me and where that fear came from was I have a photo book of her um, when she was like teenager and she looked really happy and I was like there's no way I just don't believe that this 16 year old knows what's going to happen to her and that was so scary because I was like is it gonna am I a ticking time bomb does it just happen to people her brother took his own life. Like, it runs deep in her family, so I just knew that there was a possibility. And then when it did, I thought that that was just my fate, that, like, mm. that was, it now happened to me. And because the narrative I was told about her was she just had to go. Like, she just, she was so sick that she had to go. Mm. And I was like, well, I guess I'm so sick that maybe I have to go because what I don't know what else there is. Wow. I'm Alexi Pappas, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, so what happens when you have two very big but very different disparate dreams vying for your focus? Do you choose one at the exclusion of the other? Or instead, do you risk it all to pursue both? This was the dilemma faced by today's guest, a woman who I think it's fair to say knows a thing or two about what it takes to execute at the highest level. Her name is Alexi Pappas, and Alexi is many, many things. She's an Olympic athlete, She ran the 10,000 meters for Greece in Rio and holds the Greek national record in that event. But, and this is where things get really interesting. She's also a poet. She's a writer who has contributed to publications like The Atlantic, The New York Times, Outside and Sports Illustrated. She's a filmmaker. She co-wrote, co-directed, and has starred in two independent features, Tracktown, which astonishingly, she made in the very same year that she competed in the Olympics, which is mind blowing. And her second movie is called Olympic Dreams, which was the first non-documentary style movie to ever be filmed at the actual Olympic games. In addition, because all of that obviously isn't enough, she's also a newly minted, wonderful author. Her just released memoir, Bravey, is just a fantastic read. I can't recommend it more highly. Basically, Alexi is my new favorite person. This conversation is spectacular and it's all coming up in a few, but first. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that Most of them are highly processed with tons of additives. 
and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair Trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. 
Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Okay, Alexi Pappas, where to begin? Well, let me say this. Although Alexi somebody who's been widely profiled everywhere from the New York Times to Rolling Stone, my interest wasn't truly piqued until this recent and amazing, I might add, New York Times op doc on Alexi came out, which was produced by friend of the pod, marathoner and New York Times editor, Lindsey Krauss. Credit to Lindsay for doing an amazing job on this project. And this short film poignantly portrays Alexi's struggle with depression. And I felt it a somewhat parallel narrative to my conversation with Olympian Caroline Burkle. Anyway, after watching it, I knew immediately that I wanted to have Alexi on the podcast. So here we are. This is a conversation about a very interesting and unique path that this woman has carved for herself. It's about setting and working towards audacious and disparate dreams. In her case, athletics, filmmaking, and writing that are all competing for her attention. It's about how and why she refused to pick just one lane. It's about navigating setbacks, how trauma can fuel success. It's about healing that trauma and it's about finding the joy in the journey. But more than anything, this is about being what Alexi calls bravey. How is it possible that this delightful human is so good at so many things simultaneously? And what is the cost of setting the bar so high? Well, let's find out. This is me and Alexi Pappas. Well, I am so thrilled to finally meet you and talk to you. And to kind of introduce this, it's a little embarrassing, but I uh, like I knew who you were and I had a sense of the things that you had done and are involved in, but I didn't like know you. And then when uh, the New York Times opdoc came out, I was really moved by that. And Lindsay's a mutual friend and, that kind of prompted me to do a deeper dive into your life. And that happened to coincide with your publicist reaching out about doing the show, which was, I was like immediately, yes, please come oh on the gosh. show. Um, so I've spent like the last week really uh, enjoying like all the different things that, that you've done. I watched both movies, I'm well into oh, your book. Wow. The book is so good, it's fantastic. Like you did such a remarkable job. I love the movies and you're like my new favorite person. So I'm all nervous to talk to you. And this is just super exciting. Well, it's exciting for me. And um, it's exciting for me in more ways than one. I, I admire what you do. I admire how, how committed you are to what you do and how interesting and interested you are. But also my best friend since two years old, you are like, the greatest thing to her and you've kept her, she's actually a COVID nurse and you have kept her company on like mountain runs and long drives to the hospital in in Denver. Mm. And when she learned that this was happening, 
suddenly she was like, this is the most exciting thing you have ever done, Alexi. And I've done, I've, I'm very proud of my life. Now I feel so much pressure, um, I'm no, touched. No, no, it, it meant so much to me in the same way that she used to love like Rihanna, for example, and I didn't mm -hmm. love Rihanna music growing up, but Amanda, my best friend in the world, loved Rihanna music so much. And you know, when someone you love is like, joyful, you begin to like the things that make them happy. I felt like my excitement was like compounded with the joy and excitement that she had. Um, and she really is the coolest person I know. And since you're the coolest person she knows, then that makes this right, very well, what's exciting. what's up, Amanda? Thank you for that. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you for listening. That's um, amazing. That's super cool. Thank you. Uh, I, I, there's so many things I wanna talk to you about, but the first thing I, I have to do this first, like I have to understand how you could possibly compete in the Olympics in the same year that you co-wrote, co-directed and starred in a feature film. And I feel like it's so insane. And what's interesting about, about you and myself and our, our you know, different backgrounds is that, um, I think there are very few people, like like a, an average person can kind of understand what it takes to be an Olympian or what it takes to make a feature film. But I'm deeply connected to both of those things. I wasn't an Olympian, but I trained with a lot of Olympians. As an entertainment lawyer, I've been you know deeply involved in the production of many independent feature films. And I have uh, you know a very tactile sense of what's required to execute at the highest level to realize those dreams. Each in their own right, you know, are, are feats of impossibility, but to accomplish both in the same year is so astounding. Like I just can't even wrap my head around it. It's such a magnificent accomplishment. Thank you. Well, and I'm, to do it well, like the movie, tra I mean, I love Tracktown, I love Olympic Dreams and for Tracktown to be your first feature that, that you and Jeremy did together, I was just, you know, I was really amazed. I really appreciate that. And I think um, sometimes our, our, our willingness to stretch ourselves and try something that we've never done before is, is made more powerful by the fact that we don't know what it would, will really take. Yeah. Um, but once we're committed, I think people like us will, will do what it takes. And, you know, I was noticing, I know this isn't, I don't know if I can say this on here, but this is a new studio, right? This is yeah. a new setup and uh, you have a shower in your bathroom. I know that we just finished uh, construction on that like yesterday. And is it so that you might train and shower and then do some of your work here? 100%. So that the idea that you like have created a, you've created a life around being able to to, to transition from one thing that you're doing in a day to the other. And I think the that's practical, but there's also um, something mental about shifting gears and being able to hyper-focus with any one of your tasks in any given day and then being mm -hmm. able to consciously shift to the next one. And I think some of the, the misconception that people might have when they look at the things that I've done on paper or in any given year is that I'm doing them all at the same time. And the truth is that I'm trying to do one of those things really well in any given moment and then excellently transitioned to the next task. Mm -hmm. And I think that in that year, it kept me healthy as an athlete to end practice at a certain time and to not have practice last all day. Because as you and I know, you can run for 
several hours, but you can't run all day. Yeah. Um, but some people let that happen, whether it's mentally or physically. And so in some ways, ending practice and just worrying about how are we gonna fund this movie was a, a blessing to my Olympic trajectory as well. Because you couldn't just sit and stew uh, and, and obsess about things that you don't have control over. Like it allowed you to shift gears and, and stay fresh with both things because you had other pursuits outside of just that singular focus. Yeah, and, and it even simplified running because if, if, if I thought about how challenging it was going to be to do this workout, uh, I could also have the perspective of how simple it is that I just need to keep putting one foot in front of the other when it felt like so complicated to try to put together a feature film. So I think the feature film people dynamics, you mm. know, how, how, what it takes to put a movie together is so different than what it takes to just keep running when you're in a mile repeat. Right. Um, and likewise, the pain of doing that mile repeat or doing multiple was very painful compared to the ease of sitting on a couch and making phone calls or writing a script, which is hard, but it's not like my body hurts right. while I'm doing it. So I right. think they were um, Tweedledee and Tweedledum to each other, just playful. But each in their own right are so overwhelming. There must've been moments where you just felt like this, I'm climbing you know, a mountain that is double the size of Everest. Yeah, it felt, it felt, hard. I have a great partner too, you know, like I do have Jeremy with me and I was never pulling all nighters while my goal, my number one goal was to go to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it, and, and perhaps you can relate is knowing what is the priority in any given moment and always knowing what my North star was. And then everything needs to fall under that. So like the, I am going to sleep at least eight hours a night. And that's like, non-negotiable, even if we need to stay up late editing, there's a time when I need right. to stop. Right. Um, so maybe those boundaries are, um, are more clear because I knew what the priority one was and priority two, but it was stressful. Like, mm -hmm. but it was stressful in like a thrilling way because I was playing a game right. running and I was making a movie. And also no one's ever done anything like that before which is kind of exhilarating and intimidating, I would suspect. Um, and I'm sure you get the balance question all the time. Like, how do you balance your life? Yeah. And I, I, I hate that. I don't look at life in that context. It just seems confusing to me. Like it seems, my sense is that it's more with you, it's more about synergy. Like are these things in synergy with each yes. other? Do they feed off of each other? Do each one of these things make me better at the other one? Do you feel like you're thriving, right? It's mm -hmm. like more of a feeling. And what? how do you answer it when people ask you that question? I mean, I used to feel, I used to feel guilt and shame because my life does, is not really balanced in that traditional sense. And yeah. I would strive to make it fit into those buckets. And at some point I just let go of that whole thing. And, you know, look in the, in the macro, and I'm sure this is the case with yourself, in the macro, your life is very much in balance, but you're shifting gears between intense focus on different things that give your life meaning and, you know, make you excited when you wake up in the morning. But to the average person, 
on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis, it would appear that you're very much out of balance. Yes, okay, now I feel like I understand what you're getting at because there were people during that time who were like, I think you and Jeremy should take a break and like go camping this weekend. Like, I think you guys need a night off or like, I'm, I'm, I think you need, I think you should, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was like, you know, I was at an age where it was like, I felt a little weird about it. I was like, I know I'm living in Oregon and there's so much great camping, but all I wanna do is work on these projects. Like I, I, I was so happy being so overflowing with, with mm-hmm. what I was doing. Mm. And I feel like what you're saying is similarly, you, you like live for, to work, but your work is your choice and your work is your passion. And so it's your pleasure to have this like bubbling cauldron that someone might look at and, and not think is healthy. Yeah, yeah I mean, there, there's that, but it's also the intensity that you bring to whatever it is you're doing. Like if it's an ultra endurance race or you training for the Olympics or trying to execute on a feature film or me yeah. you know, doing what I do here, I get joy out of being totally immersed in whatever it is that I'm doing. And I'm not effective unless I can say no to other things and plot yeah. things out so that I can give my best. But that means that other things in my life that are important to me aren't getting adequate amount of attention on that particular day. So the yeah. gear shifting is important such that everything in my life that I care about is attended to properly. It just doesn't happen on an hour to hour or day to day basis necessarily. Yeah. Right, I know you can, I, you feel it. You're vibing yeah. on that, right? Yeah. I feel like when I watched Tracktown, the, your erstwhile boyfriend in the movie was sort of a proxy for the people who are saying, take a break or go camping. And I found that movie, like it's so heartfelt and authentic and, 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 and beautifully realized in so many ways, but it was also very stressful for me to watch that movie really? because my sense is that you were trying to craft an alternate universe in which you weren't somebody who has many different interests and allocates your energy across a variety of disciplines, but to stand in the shoes of that person who's all in 100% on just that one thing. Yeah. And, and you're tiptoeing outside of that, you know, on the precipice of, of trying to qualify for the Olympics. Yeah. And I was like, just wait two days. Like, can't you just go back into your altitude tent yeah, and yeah. rest until like Thursday or whatever day it was? Like yeah. your race is tomorrow. Yes, well, that's funny because so many people who don't know me think that it's a track town is a documentary. And I was like, uh-huh. it's, well, first of all, that would mean a number of different things if it wasn't, if it was actually a documentary, like that we caught me losing my virginity mm-hmm. on camera somehow <laughs> and things like that, which no, it's not. People did, um, didn't actually think that, right? No, we've we've had that. Really? We've also had people who um, did not believe that Plum as a character uh, was real. And these are people who are outside the running world, like really prestigious, like film advisors. Um, we were in a Sundance lab with mm-hmm. it. And um, some people just didn't believe that someone like that could exist someone who had never kissed a boy at age 21 and and that and and that's very real like i it's those, incredibly real to you but to the world she isn't um known and that was part of the reason why i wanted to put her on camera uh and 
to say that this person does exist. She's a patchwork quilt of people that I know and experiences yeah. I've had, but she could exist. And those are the types of characters that I'm interested in putting in my movies is like the characters that I know are real. The world doesn't know them yet. And these scenarios could mm. exist. Yeah, I know that girl. Like I've been around a lot of people very much like that. Yeah. Have you read uh, uh, David Epstein's book, Range? Yes. Yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about that book in the context of your story, because for people who don't know, his thesis is essentially that people who are super high performers by and large defy conventional wisdom. They're not the Tiger Woods or the Plums who go all in at a very early age on one singular pursuit, but rather they're people who dabble in lots of different things before they finally end up like kind of deciding what their lane is. And you're somebody who is, you know, a, a beautiful case study of, of that thesis and Plum is of the 10,000 hour, you know, Malcolm Gladwell kind of rule. And, you know, I say conventional wisdom because there is this idea, like if you wanna excel at that highest level, like you have to be that plum type individual. And in truth, more often than not, it's not the case. And the people that are like the plums end up burning out. Like they, they, they you see this individual who's not fully emotionally realized, right? And, mm -hmm. and her, her strength, which is her focus is also her weakness. It's her blind spot that's holding her back from performing at the highest level because she still has so much to learn and grow because she's so siloed in her life experience. Yeah, it, it reminds me of this advice we got from our college coach when I was at Dartmouth and we were going to a national championships. It was like the first one we, I'd ever been to. I was like a junior, it was for a relay team. And he turns to us, this is Mark Coogan. He was also an Olympian and he was like, and this isn't an Ivy League reference, but he was like, just remember that you're, you're smart and you, you can think and that that's a strength too. And I think he, he felt bad because some of us were writing our final papers on the bus, like we were balancing a lot. And, but I think what he really meant was that we had some perspective to bring into that race, mm -hmm. whatever that meant, and to use that as a strength. And I have felt that in races where um, just being able to like think critically or zoom out a little or have some perspective does help. And I think that's what that's what you're saying about like a character mm -hmm. like Plum where that hyperfocus is is really noble and useful, but the range, the, the bringing in people dynamics, um, understanding the world in a different way can be a strength too. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a balancing act, right? Because you do have to be all in in some way, but you have to provide that room to be a human being. Especially in a sport like running, which has to grow with you. Yeah. Like probably all sports are like that, but running as much as any has got to evolve as you're evolving. Yeah. And I think it's the people who try to keep it what it always, what it was or what they think it should be mm -hmm. that become bitter, which is mm. just not the word we want. Right. But by cutting this unique path that you've carved for yourself, I would imagine along the way, there's been a lot of people who are, you know, sort of, 
uh, naysayers or trying to dissuade you or saying you're taking on too much or why don't you just do it this way? For sure. There, I mean, from the very minute that I graduated college, there were, um, there were certain opportunities that would have either, um, there were opportunities that would have actually blended my storytelling and my running goals into one much earlier than I was ready. Mm-hmm. So this is, we're getting a little esoteric here, but, but, but basically when I first graduated from college, I wanted to be a filmmaker, an actress and an Olympian. But I, I knew that until I had created those platforms and had those stand on their own, they wouldn't be able to come together in in the way mm-hmm. that I feel that they have now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I made certain choices where I think I was being encouraged to be the filmmaker runner right away. And I needed to make choices for my running career that would set me up to be a great athlete independent of the film career. Yeah. And I needed to make choices as a creative that would make a great movie regardless of if I was a great athlete or not. Right, I mean, this is something that that you and Jeremy talked about with Dave Chang on his podcast, which I really yeah. enjoyed that conversation. But the idea being that, that um, your filmmaking success cannot be contingent upon name recognition around you as an athlete. Absolutely. And your performances have to stand on their own. Yep. And and you've done that. Like you are, you know, you are the athlete that you are and it has nothing to do with your filmmaking. And you don't have to know who you are to watch these movies and enjoy them. It has nothing to do with your you know, how fast you can run ten thousand meters or a marathon or anything else. Thank you. And maybe that speaks to to range. I think those people who are seeking these ra- the range of of um experiences i would hope that all those people are still seeking to do the to seek the best of those worlds mm-hmm. right like if we're i don't know like i don't love cupcakes i like them but if i'm going to go i want to find like the best cupcakes you know i want to like go to the yeah. peaks of these worlds because there's something to be learned from people and communities that are chasing the best of any world right yeah. and that's why right like i listen to David Chang's podcast because I like how invested he is in his craft. And I know I can learn from him even though I'm not in the food industry. Right, it's the mindset, it's the approach, it's the respect for the craft, the attention to detail, the quality, all of those things, whether you're an athlete, a filmmaker, a writer, or a chef, they're all related. They're all relevant to pursuing something and trying to be excellent at it. And I think that for me, that comes from like a really melancholic place if I really think about it. And I've never thought about it this way, but I think that I always wanted, right? Like I did, I did not have a mom, right? I lost her young. And I think I always wanted that or was curious what that could be with full awareness that I could never have it really, truly mm. how I would want it. But I did know that I could have everything else. And, and I talk about this in the book as a, the mentor buffet is what mm-hmm. I call it. But what I, I think what I meant was, well, I'm just gonna go chase the best of every other world and try to patchwork it, quilt it into something that can fill that need for that keystone mentor as best that I can. 
So I think it comes from that. Like, I truly think it was like a survival thing of, I can't have the very best of the very singular thing I would like, but I'm going to chase and, and shamelessly like draw from and mm -hmm. dip myself into those other, every other world. Mm -hmm. If that interests me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you mean, in, in the book, you did a beautiful job of, of kind of underscoring or illustrating this, you know, void in your life. And I wanna go back and, and hear more about this of not having a mom and, and these, and, and, and like your hypervigilance whenever you were in a situation in which daughters were with moms, whether it was Girl Scouts or the feeding of the ducks and all of these experiences where you, looked at it almost as some something exotic that you couldn't yes. quite emotionally connect with, right? Yeah. And that yes. tracks like all the way through your life, even to the point where you're at the Olympics and you go to get like a, a makeover and that experience of having that person um, have you comb your hair and like all of that, like you were, it was so foreign to you because you didn't grow up with a mom who taught you these things. Yes. and and. I think it takes a certain muscle to feel like the world is a reservoir that gives rather than takes and that it we all have a choice to make about that whether we see the world that way or not but if we can see it as something where we're allowed to get things and and, uh -huh. and soak it in then we can get it anywhere we look um and I think that wears off for a lot of people eventually. Like you feel like I'm formed as a person. I now will create content and put it out rather than take it in anymore. And that's fine. Like we don't need to take in from everywhere, but the world is remarkable. And there are a, there is a lot that we can get from it, even in adulthood, mm. if we um, see it that way. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. Well, let's let's take it back. You're growing up in Berkeley. Let's go all the way to the beginning. Okay. So uh, walk me through um, you as a young girl, four years old. Well, I was I was born in Berkeley and grew up on an island called Alameda. It was more like a peninsula, Bay Farm Island. But I've never heard Alameda referred to as an island, but yes, I guess it is. I think it's like the island city, but then Bay Farm was a peninsula, which is essentially the Oakland airport. It's right there. Mm. And that was a safe island to be. Like you could walk with your friends to the ice cream shop as we did. And your parents would generally think you were going to be okay. Um, but yeah, so when I was young, the first like four or five years of my life did, it coincided with my mom's like really intense, uh, you know, downward spiral. She she was manic, bipolar. And I think like my birth really catalyzed a, a really tough turn for her. Um, she was addicted to painkillers. She had scoliosis. So she, it, this was in the nineties. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of over prescription, I think of, painkillers. Um, and so she was addicted to them and she was very smart and able to like obtain them in any way possible, which now my dad and I were able to actually have a laugh about when I read him the book, I read it to him out loud, which was oh, a really, wow. really fun. It was a really meaningful weekend, but he, he opened up a lot and, uh, she was very scrappy about her, um, 
drugs and she got them. (laughs) Um, And she was depressed and she was getting help that uh, I now understand would not have helped anybody in her position. And Mm -hmm. that I only understood in the last year or two discovering paperwork from her care in Berkeley. Um, But she was in and out of our life because she was in institutions or drug rehab. And um, so I just, I never, you know, had that relationship with her where I, you know, I don't remember really touching her. And that has always been a strange thing for me. Um, An obsession maybe of like, just what it would be like to be embraced like that. The one, and the one recollection that you have of of physical contact with her was her giving you her cigarette. Yes. When you're like this tiny little girl. Oh, I'll never, I'll never forget that. I mean, and it's so, when I wrote that too, I was afraid that people might read it and think she was a bad person or like a bad mom. And I think that's why a book is a really important medium as compared to like a one-off social media post or other forms of sharing, which is fragmented. Like, and I, and I wanted to write that in a way where perhaps you didn't understand her fully. Cause at mm-hmm. that age, I didn't either. And that's why the book, you know, I tried to emotionally progress it rather than just linearly. Right. So she was smoking a cigarette and which she did often. And it was just me and her and um, she, re- I rarely remember her giving me attention, but she did in this moment and she offered me her cigarette and I smoked it. Right. And I was four. <laughs> um, it's so amazing. Well, it's so, you know, what's so, the wildest thing. It's heartbreaking. Thing, well, yeah, but what's heartbreaking is, oh, what's cool about it and what's been tough about it is that I realized much later that all I've looked for ever since then is that feeling of somebody I admire so much sharing something with me. And it like means so much because it makes me feel like that again, Mm. you know? Well, her, you know, her condition was very acute. She's in and out of these institutions. And when she would come home, seemingly in a state of relative fitness so that she could be with her family, everybody's on pins and needles, all the attention is on her 24 seven. And it's interesting how that, you know, that that blueprint gets imprinted on you. And then as a, you know, as a kind of survivor of this trauma, you then become this person who is like, I want the attention on me. you like, how can yeah. I get the attention? How can I be seen in a certain way? And so many of the pursuits that you've, you know, gone after are kind of a ref- like, well, what do you do? You go, you 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 make movies, or you yeah. become an Olympian. That way, it's undeniable, right? Yes. Everybody's going to have to pay attention to you. Yes, it's it was a completely effective and unhealthy pursuit of chasing and awesome, and like and it's awesome. messy and <laughs> yeah. complicated, right? But I was chasing, I think, for so many years, external um, external solutions to an internal problem. Right. Like it was so, it was so effective though, right? Like I was like, I can put myself through as much pain as humanly possible in the good way. Like, cause I consider running mm. pain or the vulnerability of being, you know, acting with someone as good pain. I was like, I will go to the world's edge in the, in the game of good pain um, and just watch me. And, and it has been tremendously powerful. Like I can, 
go to the end of good yeah. pain. And and what is that, you know, diving deeper into the relationship with pain, like how does that act as a therapeutic for some of these issues? Well, it's not the feeling of pain that is therapy, it's the feeling, it's the it's the feeling of mattering that I get as a result of enduring mm. that pain. And that's that's not been an entirely, I think, healthy thing to chase, to chase, I want to matter because I didn't feel like I mattered enough for my mom to stay. I now understand that not to be true, mm. but for so much of my life, I think until the Olympics, I thought that my mission in life would be to not be like her, to be as far from her as possible, which I saw as being successful and happy. And the ways that I might've chased that were chasing these external right. goals. Right. Um, but through running, did you, you know, there is something, there's something cathartic about running and that relationship with pain that does work to kind of salve emotional wounds in a certain way, like in a, yeah. in a kind of meditative way, like it's a way, it's almost like performing an exorcism, you yeah. know, of, of unconscious, you know, things that are going on in your, in your awareness that are traumatic. Yeah, that's how you feel about it? Yeah, I have, I, 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 do, I, I do, yeah, I do. Not, yeah. not for you though. No, no, I think I do yeah. too. I think that I, I feel that as long as I'm in the territory of good pain, then that's a good application mm. of myself. And I think that she could have been chasing good pain too. She just didn't didn't have the right, right. mentorship. Like she right. just didn't have the guidance to go there instead mm -hmm. of there, right? Mm -hmm. um, but running does uh, feel like that to me. It feels like a really, uh, it's an, it's a, you're on the outermost limits of yourself mentally and physically with running. And so it is, you are dancing on that edge and, yeah. and um, it's good. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily personally for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25.
We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources, and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, It's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. So much of your life was premised on differentiating yourself from your mom, like out of a fear that you might, you know, follow in her footsteps in a certain way. And I would imagine that you felt like you had, you know, escaped that in some way, but as the, you know, op doc um, shows, and, and as you talk about in your book, like nonetheless, you have this experience with depression in the aftermath of the Olympics, you know, most acutely, 
Um, it must have been terrifying when that was visited upon you. You must have thought like, oh my goodness, like am, am I gonna end up like my mother? Yeah, it was, I mean, when I started having, um, I, first of all, I didn't have the vocabulary that I tried to share in the op doc. I didn't have that vocabulary when I started experiencing these mm -hmm. symptoms. So I was in total denial that I was sick because I, I didn't understand that your brain can get injured just like your knee. I just, I didn't understand that. And so I was of the mindset as I had always been in my life that I needed to keep pressing forward and, and fix all on my own, whatever it was that I was feeling to the point where I wasn't sleeping, but I tried to force myself to sleep. And you know, that's, it's called falling asleep for a reason. You have right. to let it, right, let it happen. You, and you, being a good um, type A athlete, you're trying to will everything into yeah. existence. And then I started to have these even darker thoughts. And that's when I felt like I understood my mom in a way that I never wanted to understand her. Like I, it's, you have these thoughts that like you wanna die. And I don't think you really want to want to die, but the thoughts say otherwise. And that's when mm. you're, you're sick. Um, and it was terrifying because I always, I've always been afraid my whole life for the moment that, um, that that might happen to me. And, and where that fear came from was, I have a photo book of her um, when she was like teenager and she looked really happy. And I was like, there's no way, I just don't believe that this 16 year old knows what's gonna happen to her. And that was so scary. Cause I was yeah. like, is it gonna, am I a ticking time bomb? Does it just happen to people? Um, and you know, her brother took his own life, like it runs deep in her family. So I just knew that there was a possibility. And then when it did, but before I understood that there was a way to get better, I thought that that was just my fate, that like mm. that was, it now happened to me. And because the narrative I was told about her was she just had to go. Like she just, she was so sick that she had to go. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I guess I'm so sick that maybe I have to go because what I don't know what else there is. Wow. Um, and that's so embarrassing, honestly, to share because I don't feel that way anymore, but I didn't understand. And I think it's sad that even someone who was susceptible to these things, you know, my family history was public, right? There was no prehab, if you will, if you wanna call like, if we wanna use this body comparison of the brain is a body part, I had no prehab, I had no preparation to deal with this. And it wasn't until my my dad, because of his experience with my mom, made me get help that I met a doctor, Dr. Arpea, who told me very simply that I was sick and that my brain had a scratch on it and that it could get injured like any other body part, but it could also heal like any other body part. And suddenly everything like, it literally turned around in a day, not, I wasn't happy, but I believed that I could be on a path to healing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I could commit to it just like I would an Olympic dream. Mm. Did it also provide you with a little more empathy for your mom? Oh, a hundred percent. Like my, I've gone, my relationship with her has been such a roller coaster where I didn't know how she died for a long time. So I felt sorry for her because I used to think she died from 
smoking. Right. And then I was really angry. You didn't find out until like seventh grade or something like that, right? And it was Amanda, our dear friend Amanda, Mm. who loves you. (laughs) Who She should be here today. She should be here today. She's saving lives. She's saving lives. So um, we were in middle school and there was this day where everyone was supposed to make tombstones for people that they, cardboard tombstones, people they knew to have died of smoking. And I wrote my mom's name, felt very brave. You know, those moments in your life where you're like, today's the day where I'm brave. Um, So I was brave and I wrote her name down and it was in retrospect, really embarrassing because that's not how she died and everybody else knew, but I didn't know. Um, And it's in the yearbook. It's in my seventh grade yearbook, this picture, it was on no smoking day. Her name is there. Oh my goodness. Um, And Everyone else wrote Walt Disney for some reason. And then Amanda pulled me aside and she told me that her mom told her she should tell me the truth. And it was really a gift that she told me because it's good to know. Yeah, but you must've been pissed off too that you were the last person to find out. I, you know, I've never been able to like truly be mad at my dad for anything relating to my mom. Like I was angry in the, in the preteen way but I wasn't angry in the real way. And I was never gonna tell him. Like, I remember I was like, I'm not gonna tell him that I know because clearly this is, I just, and there's a chapter in the book called Dad Said that's about just this, where you're just more angry at the circumstance that he's in, in general, Mm -hmm. it feels unfair. So I wasn't angry at him for not telling me, just like I'm not angry at him for any of the strange or unusual yeah. parenting that he's done. Well, your dad was in an impossible situation and he rose to the occasion like a champ. I mean, the things that he did to like raise you and your brother are, are quite amazing. And I wanna get into that in a minute, but on this subject of, of, of depression and elite athletics, we're in a moment right now where we're having conversations that we should have had a long time ago. It's very much in the kind of mainstream parlance. Um, I recently had Caroline Burkle on the show, mm-hmm. an Olympian who you know has her version of, of of your experience. We've talked about the weight of gold, that documentary, yeah. and kind of what Michael Phelps is doing right now to talk about these issues. So there's an openness, I think, um, to this discussion. But I think what what makes your story a little bit different and unique is that most of these athletes are so singularly, they're like plum, like they're just on this track and then they either make the Olympics or they don't. And then they're faced with this existential crisis about what they're supposed to do yeah. with the rest of their life. And they're only 24 or 30 at, you know, at most, mm-hmm. but you're unique in that you already not only had a complete grip on what it is that you wanted to do outside of sport, you were already fully immersed in it and successful in it. So that transition, away from athletic performance into, you know, creative pursuits, that path was already, you know, being blazed by you. And yet that was not enough for you to escape, you know, this experience, which whether genetic or whatever it is, still visited you and was still like very difficult. Well, perhaps that's like the epiphany that some people have when they realize that running hurts for everyone no matter what. Like I, when I talk to people and they realize that running still hurts me, they're amazed. Like, they're like, wait, it hurts you just like it hurts me. <laughs> and I'm like, it does hurt me. Uh-huh. I just have a different 
relationship now with pain. And I see it as more of a sensation, not a threat. But I think the thought that that anyone is immune to this kind of scratch on your brain or these illnesses is just like that misconception where it's like, no, actually anxiety about the future or um, a fundamental misunderstanding about the brain <laughs> or whatever it is that leads to these mental illnesses um, can happen to everyone. And to think it's, it's like how growing up is hard for everyone. Like whether yeah. you're extremely privileged or challenged or no matter what, I, I think in, to, in different ways, growing up is always going to be challenging. And so probably um, to assign a godlike maturity to someone who's at the top of their game is not the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we might be really, really mature. Our bodies might be totally peaked on paper. We might be doing great, but there's still, we all have to go through the emotional maturity and, and growing up. And, um, and if we haven't been given the vocabulary to see our lives a different way or to see those challenges when they come differently, then we're going to, we might mess right, up. Right, right, right. I mean, it's it's that identity that you shoulder as an Olympian, but also the projection that everybody places on you, right? Like you're supposed to be, you know, oh, immune from these sorts of things, yeah. right? So then of yeah. course, that makes it more difficult for the person who's suffering to actually reckon with what's happening because there's guilt and shame and, you know, why is this happening to me? Yeah. Um, I have no reason to feel the way that I'm feeling right for now. For sure. When you feel like the world sees you at completely, a completely different way than you see yourself, there's nothing more mind-blowingly difficult than that when it's so weird. It's so strange. And then to talk about it feels indulgent. Like you're gonna, burden, sure. you're gonna burden somebody with your like, you know, Madam Olympian over here with your little depression problem. For sure. But, <laughs> but again, I think that's like, you know, that's abstracting it to like, we are in a place where we can accept, I think as a, as a world that elite athletes and high achievers can have these mental injuries, these mental illnesses. But I think the most important thing now is like, what do we do about them? And that was something that I found, um, I find that sometimes, you know, we point fingers at the like, the pinnacle institutions that we're chasing. But actually I truly think that this kind of education or shift has to happen much younger and on a more universal level, not just at those pinnacles. So what would that look like if you were in charge and could put those things in place? Well, let's look at body, um, the way we've approached the body and like how that's progressed over the last, let's say 10 years, like 10 years ago, I don't think my dad or my friend's little sister would have seen a PT for their body uh, without having an injury, meaning right. like regularly take care of their body. And so just looking at that world, we've come a long way to accepting that our body is something not only elite athletes should take care of, but everybody should take care of and that we should take care of it before it's a problem, ideally, if you are able to have that kind of support. And it's not, um, there's just like systems and you can always, you can get that kind of help if you can and need it, right? And I think with mental health, the the comparing it to, 
healing an injury is so simple to me and makes so much sense. So what it would look like to me is accepting, honestly, that our brain is a body part and it can get injured. And when it gets injured, just like when we break our leg or feel something strange in our leg, we have no shame about sharing that mm -hmm. something is off and we get help and we know where to get help. And it's either built into the system that we're in, like a team might have a physio, they might have a psychologist too, or someone can refer you to their favorite physio or their favorite psychologist. Like there's just more accessibility just like there is in like the PT world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we get that help and we are as kind to ourselves as we are hard on ourselves knowing that it's not gonna resolve overnight. Like nobody is demanding that somebody's broken leg heal tomorrow. And so why are we demanding that somebody's depression heal tomorrow? Because it's uncomfortable for us to talk about, right? We wanna pretend that it doesn't exist or because there's shame or- Right, because it's invisible. Yeah. But if we like think about it more like an injury, like no one can see your torn hamstring either, but they know that it's there if you say it and they, they believe it's there. So if we just see it as more of a physical injury, which it is, mm -hmm. then I think it becomes a little less uh, subjective and a little more objective. Right, right. well, I, I also think in the athlete context that you know, at a university, every athletic department has you know, a whole like complex around physical therapy, but yeah. the mind is only beginning to be addressed in that world. Yeah. And it's so important, like we're just now beginning to really understand how critical it is that our emotional well-being is attended to and needs to be rehabbed from time to time yeah. in the same way that, you know, your joints do. Totally. I think that's uh that's that's it and and that um I can only speak to my experience, but that change of perspective saved my life. Like it, it, it allowed me to buy into a process and believe in it and believe that it could work. And I remember being told, you're going to be sad every day for a long time. And it was not unlike hearing when I broke my foot, your foot is gonna be broken every mm -hmm. day for a long time. It's gonna take 12 weeks to heal, but it will be healing. And I started to think about myself as like a, like a crock pot, like a soup where, um, you know, so I was told that I was going to be sad and that I should rather focus on my actions and that those were the only things I could control. And in, I thought about myself as that soup where I was gonna put in actions and I wasn't gonna know in what ratio, like, you know, how much did medication help versus cognitive behavioral therapy versus finally getting the sleep I needed versus simply waiting for a period of time versus going for walks. Like you never know what kind of ratios, right. what the perfect ratio is, but you do know the soup is cooking. You're putting in ingredients, you're stirring, you're waiting and it will become soup. Right, and in the meantime, just being told like, you're gonna feel this way allows you to be in acceptance rather yeah. than beating yourself up because you woke up again and didn't feel good. You're less, you don't have the secondary emotion of being offended by the sadness as much. You almost are like, right. you wake up with the sadness, like it's, you know, I don't have a child, but I think about like, if a baby's crying and you're at the grocery store, the baby's crying, but you still gotta get the milk, you know? Right. So I think about it in that way sometimes where, 
you almost have a sense of humor about it or at least some levity to understand that it's there, it will be there for a while and you're mm. in the process of making it go away. It almost sounds like stepping outside of it, like not self-identifying with it. It's this yeah. thing, it's not me. Yes, it's it's this, it's- Entity. Yeah, it's your sadness that, right. um, and, and I was told that actions change first, then thoughts, mm -hmm. then feelings and in that order. And that was another life-saving rule basically, because what I observed from my mom was that her caretakers were trying to force the feelings and she was trying to force the feelings to change. And we can't, they, they follow our thoughts, which follow our actions. Right, I always say mood follows action. Perfect, right? right? So you get to the other side of this, what is your daily regimen now for kind of that, you know, maintaining your mental well being? Yeah, it's a, okay, that's a great question. First of all, I found it very difficult to find like psychiatric, psychological care in general. It was hard when I needed it. I had to ask for favors and it that that sucked honestly that you can't get it as readily as you might be able to see a PT and I've still found it challenging. I've still found it labyrinthian mm -hmm. to find good care. Um but I've found uh like continued support. I work with I work with a psychiatrist here to just like make sure I check in and I also I work with a team um like a it's not just sports psychology, it's like psychology. I work with a woman named Natalie Pachetti and she's helped me like continue to to unbound some of the like childhood personal laws that might be driving me in an unhealthy way mm -hmm. and might be limiting me. So this is like an ever unfolding thing and, and I'm working on it. But on a day-to-day -day level, I think I'm also monitoring myself. And so I take a little bit more seriously. If there's a night where I'm like restless and can't sleep, that's a moment to pause and figure out like what is keeping me up at night? Because prior I was like plowing ahead and never not slowing down to, to wonder why that right. was happening. And then there's this one tool that my physio gave me that I think is the coolest thing in the world, um, which is can I share? Yeah. I feel like I'm talking a lot. No, come um, on. This okay. is what we're here it's, to do. This is so cool. I wanna hear this. Okay, so uh, I had this physio. Um, he is from Japan. I was working with him. His name's Cooney in LA. And he, uh, I was having like some symptoms in my hip one time. Uh -huh. And instead of like look at my, looking at my hip right away, he asked me about my face. And he was like, have you noticed anything um, cause I was like, is my hip broken? Like what's going on? He was like, okay, back up last week when this started, did you notice anything in your face? And I actually had like a small red discoloration under my eye. That was abnormal, almost like a little, a little mini sunburn. And he was like, okay, cool. So you have the most nerves in your face, your stomach and your hands. And when your body is starting to get overloaded, whether you're stressed out or it's overtraining, like the cells only no effort. So he was basically saying, when you start overdoing it, your body wants you to succeed. So it will 
give you signs that tell you to pause. Mm. And he told me that I needed to pay better attention to my face because this was wow. not a broken hip. This was just a nervous system overload. And my nerves, once your face is ignored, will start shutting down parts of your body for a bit. And then eventually, you know, it'll keep shutting you down because it wants to preserve you. So from there forward, I started paying close attention to I have wonderful Greek skin and I don't get a lot of acne. So when I get a pimple, <laughs> uh-huh. it might mean a Something's day off, up. literally. Wow. And for other people, it might be a canker sore or an eye twitch or just whatever is abnormal for you and your face, I suppose, or your stomach, but the face is just a really obvious one. It just means that you're starting to get overloaded. Mm. And so what I'm doing now is trying to pay better attention to the signs, the very first signs of overdoing Mm-hmm. it so that I don't get to the point of not sleeping for three months. Right, that's fascinating. Isn't it great? Yeah, that's very cool. I've never thought of that. I mean, it's it's sort of a kind of a acupuncture kind of Ayurvedic way of looking at things. Like everything, you know, your body is this organism that's trying to always find its balance point, right? And when something's out of balance, there will be some kind of symptom that might show up in a in a very unpredictable and different way than you might suspect. That has nothing to do with whatever is actually wrong right. itself, right? It's just a it's a little glimmer, a glimpse into paying more attention. And that the body wants you to succeed, right? It's right. not I feel like so often we're like my body hates me today and it's like your body never hates you. That uh-huh. can't be true, right? <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. Yeah. And so maybe we shift our folk, you know, maybe we shift to feeling like our body's rooting for us and it's telling us in all the languages that it knows. It can be mad at us. Yeah, it could be frustrated, right? Mm-hmm. But always trying to help. Right. Um that's a very optimistic cool way to look at it. Yeah, and and I've shared that with like elite athlete friends. Uh-huh. And it's really, when they think back to an injury, um, they can recall like I had a canker sore that week. Mm. And now we we in my small satellite teammate, teammate community, we pay better attention to our faces. Mm. That's a good practice. Um, well, let's, let's go back a little bit. You know, let's talk about you growing up with your dad, um, back to the kind of David Epstein range thing. Like you weren't, you know, a track standout from the get-go, you were playing all different kinds of sports. You were like a soccer standout originally, right? And dabbling in track, but then you were forced to like quit the track team or you got fired from the track team because you wouldn't go all in on that and let go of the other sports? Correct. There were, um, there was leadership at my high school that felt in running, we needed to not do anything else. There were other sports mm. where it felt like athletes, particularly male athletes were embraced for being multi-sport athletes, but I was definitely not embraced in that way. And because I was not willing to at 15 years old quit soccer and student government and all these other things, I was like de facto kicked off the running team. And and I was good. I was like one of the top runners in the state, but I didn't love running at that age because I didn't love the the team. There was no team environment mm-hmm. um, that, which is my favorite part about sports. It didn't feel positive. The coach, it, I just, it wasn't a positive environment. So I naturally 
did not feel like I could specialize. Did he tell you that you had to quit student government too? Yes, so I was kicked off the team twice. The first time was because of soccer and the second- Did they overlap in seasons? They, yes, there were, there were some soccer practices overlapping with the running um, season. It was like a, it was club soccer. Right. So they do overlap. And then this, the next year, my senior year, I was like, okay, maybe I won't do the soccer overlap, but I was vice president of my class and I wasn't allowed to do that either. And that was hard as well, right. because what I feel so, I feel that today that would have been like a New York Times piece in and of right. itself. I mean, you know? it's high school track. I mean, right? come we were, on. <laughs> I agree, I agree. And I was committed, you know, I was there when I could be, but I was trying to like be a whole person. And um, I don't think any 15 year old should be told to, to quit anything, you know? Um, and I just remember feeling like I was a bad kid and I, I, didn't, I didn't like that. I didn't like how um, shameful it felt to do mm. what I was doing. But at the same time, you demonstrated healthy boundaries. Like there's a self-awareness and a sense of self that you demonstrated as a young person. Because I, I suspect like if I was in that situation and I was showing promise as a track athlete, I probably would have just done what the coach wanted me to do and quit everything else and gone all in on that. Well, you might have, and then you might have not had the joy to last you through 10 more years of training, right? Or maybe- Right, well, you I'm know? not saying it would have been the right decision. I'm yeah. just thinking like, I don't know that I, my boundaries would have been much more porous and influenced by people of authority. But oh. you're, you're somebody who oh. knew yourself well enough to say, these other things are important to me. I'm not gonna do what this guy wants me to do. Yeah, I've always like been really unable to do things that are against my gut. Like it feels so bad, it feels bad. I, and I, my gut is really loud. So mm. just- Is that like a Greek thing? Yeah, the Greek gut, yeah. <laughs> it's so loud. We have the loudest guts. My microbiome yeah, my, is very vocal. I don't know, it just, it didn't feel right. Even though there wasn't like a bigger national discussion about it mm -hmm. at that time, there wasn't even social media. So nobody would have known about this. I think I knew that it wasn't uh, quite like a healthy thing, um, right. right? So you go, but you obviously you do really well in school. You get into Dartmouth, you know, going all the way to the other coast for college and you end up running there, but what's amazing is that you, I have a hard time believing this, but you were like the slowest on the team originally. So bad. I couldn't even, <laughs> I mean, I was like really fit for uh -huh. being a defender, center defender in soccer. You're, you are sprint fast, you're meaty, no one's gonna knock you over, mm -hmm. but you can't run four miles. It's a totally different body type. It's totally different. I was like, you know, dense. I was really, really dense. And I think that that, agility and that athleticism carried me and kept me healthy, not a single injury until after the Olympics, mm -hmm. pretty like solid. Um, but it did mean that when I got to Dartmouth, I was really a fish out of water, like across the country, first winter of my life. And 
could not run more than four miles without walking. And it was humiliating, like to be very honest. And I was failing classes because I was not super prepared for the academics there. Um, I definitely called my dad and I was like, this was all a mistake. Wow. Um, what did he say? He said, just keep trying Lex because that's all he ever says. And I knew he wasn't going to be the type of parent. He's not a dragon parent, but he wasn't going to give me the option to like quit anything. Right. And um, I knew, and I, and I wrote this in the book that the the good thing and the bad thing about not giving up is that it works. And I knew that it was going to be a long climb up. Like my, I just wanted to score a team point, but that I could do it. Like mm -hmm. no matter what anyone else thought of me when I was really, really slow, I knew that with time and patience, I could do it. It just was going to be really uncomfortable. Well, you had said that that you had this feeling that there was a champion inside of you. Like that's something that you carried with you. Like this this idea that there was greatness packed yeah. inside of you, um, even if it wasn't being manifest in that moment. Like where does that where does it come, come from? from? Well, I think that comes from my mom too, because when you feel, and I don't know how healthy this is to say, but when you feel so, um, like that when just, it was so wild what I saw and experienced as a child, like some of the memories of her were so um, unbelievable that I, I truly felt that if the most unbelievably bad things were true, then the most unbelievably good things could mm -hmm. be true, which I think is a survival it's interesting. thing. Uh, and also that I was special, like, I was special because this awful thing happened and then I would be capable of the opposite. Like it was almost like, if this is true, then the opposite must be true too. Huh. Right. So there was always something inside of me that was like, that believed, suspended disbelief or believed right. that, that I was, I don't know, like, part mythical or something, you know, something like Did really- Did that extend to being an Olympian? Like when you're the slowest on the team at Dartmouth, are you thinking, I'm gonna go to the Olympics? So no, and that's another <laughs> really interesting thing that I think is import, important for people to understand is that I never planned more than a year of my life in advance. And that's so important to share because had I planned five years in the future, I would have counted myself short. I would have put a, a limit on what I was capable of because I definitely didn't even think about being capable of going to the Olympics mm -hmm. when I was a freshman in college, but I also didn't think past a year. So I wasn't like, it's not possible. I just didn't think about it. And this is still how I live my life where I'm like the next year, these are the goals. This is like, I have big dreams, but yeah. they're more how I want to feel, not like what I'm gonna accomplish. Mm. And I think that's an important thing to share with people because probably most of us might sell ourselves short if we were to ask ourselves, where will I be in five or 10 years? Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe that's not true, but for me it was. Well, I think that, that, that we all wildly overestimate what we can do in a year and, and, and wildly underestimate what can be done in many years. Five yes. years, 10 years, right? Have you said that before? I have said that before. And is that how you live your life? I don't, I mean, I set goals for myself, but I don't dwell on them. I'm really focused on what the next 
thing to do is, I try to stay more present, which is sort of a variation, I think on what you're saying. And I've learned to trust my intuition and my instincts. So I hold those goals like they're out there, but I hold them loosely and I'm always making adjustments. And how important to you, I'm like, I'm so genuinely curious, is it that other people like believe in you? Like, does it, did it matter more when you were a certain time in your life or does it, did it ever matter? Does it matter now? I mean, you know, I'm an unapologetic people pleaser and, and, you know, premised huge parts of my life on, on external validation. So I'm very connected to, you know, that, um, aspect of what drives achievement. Yeah. Um, but some of the course corrections that I've made later in life were really motivated by trying to figure out what, what drives me as opposed to trying to do the thing that's gonna get me the accolades or the approval of people that I care about. Yeah. And that's I, still a struggle and a growth yeah. thing, you know? Yeah, it's, I, there, it reminds me of, um, I went to this class day speech like the year before I graduated at Dartmouth and it was like, here's five pieces of advice. And one uh-huh. of them was like, your time in the frat basement is not a waste of time. Like, you know, some yeah. of those things that are just like <laughs> the great, you know. I've spent a little like, bit of time in the frat basements at Dartmouth. Yes, you know, that's where I met Jeremy. That's how I met uh-huh. the love of my life. And with but, the uh, urinals along the wall down there. Just the worst, it's right? Unbelievable. It's unbelievable, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> It's where it's, yep. So, but one of the things he said was that as long as you're not doing something actively bad in the world, like working for a company that hurts people, you know, Mm -hmm. as long as you're not doing bad, you're probably doing good. And, And what he was addressing, I think, was that so many of us in college were like, we should work for a nonprofit, we should go into the Peace Corps. Like there were certain pillars that meant you were doing good in the world. But what he was trying to say was that as long as you are not doing bad, as long as you're manifesting the greatest version of yourself, you're probably doing good in the world. And that was really helpful to Mm. hear because I was about to go chase an Olympic dream, which felt very um, selfish. selfish. Exactly. And, And even some of this creative stuff, I mean, it's it's a team effort, but I'm pursuing the arts. And I think to hear that meant a lot to me because it meant that simply following my North Stars would do good in the world, mm-hmm. even if it's, you know, it's not right. the same idea of good. Right, good like good. flipping the lens, lens such that you're not looking at it as indulgent, but actually like the world needs everybody to be the best version of who they are. Like we need yeah. a little bit more of that messaging out there, I think. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was that was important because it can feel a little. Some of our, I think, some dream chasers can feel selfish, and I think it's only selfish if it's not your real dream or if you're not committed. Mm-hmm. Like it's only not great if you don't commit all the way. Mm-hmm. So you end up committing all the way, kinda, right? Because you're doing other things. But um, I'm interested in in that, like was there an inflection point in your running at Dartmouth where it all started to click in? Like you go from being the slowest. I mean, by the time you graduate, you're, you're killing it, right? So you're progressing as you go. Was there a moment where it all connected for you or was it just a gradual growth? 
It was gradual. It appears more sudden because junior year I like started scoring team points. It, it, it kind of seems like it was sudden when I was a senior, but the truth is that the reality is that it's gradual. And I think that's how all dreams are. They like, they happen very, very slowly and then all at once. And most people only see the all at once moment. Uh-huh. Um, it was, you know, I added practically, I mean, this is what actually happened. I added 10 miles a week to my mileage every year for four or five years. It was just 10 miles a week. So I was like 30 miles a week, 40 as a sophomore, 50 as a junior, 60 as a wow. senior, 70 it's miles a week. Tiny adjustments, really. Just tiny because, and I stayed healthy, right? And then shifts in, um, shifts that I always tried to see as choices, not sacrifices. I drank a lot of beer my freshman year and I stopped drinking a lot of beer my mm-hmm. junior year, right? So like certain choices that I made that were helping my performance, but I probably wasn't mature enough as a freshman not to explore those things. Mm-hmm. Like that was what I felt I needed to do. Um, and it did help. I just think information is helpful. Like I remember someone came and talked to us and he was like, a heavy night of drinking, he was like a pro athlete, sets you back two weeks in training. And that simple equation made it a lot easier for me to make those decisions, right. to be honest, because it wasn't this abstract, like drinking's bad. I was like, how bad is it? And he's like, two weeks bad. And I'm like, okay, so if I value my time and I don't want to go back two weeks in training, I won't drink that much. Right. You know, It doesn't mean never drink. There's a time and a place where you wouldn't care about the last two weeks of training like at the end of the season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, does that make sense? So it was like little decisions mm-hmm. that then added up. I think having Mark Coogan become my coach, he also gave me permission to believe in myself and it came from the right place. It was different for my dad to say, Lex, you can do it, mm-hmm. than to hear it from an Olympian. Right. Like that. that's powerful. And I think that's back to the question I asked you of, how much does it matter to you that people you revere and admire tell you, I give you permission to chase this? Well, it's everything. Right? It's everything. And that idea of mentorship or having those kinds of heroes is like a recurring huge theme in your book. Yeah, but yeah. you seek them out like a fisherman. Like I feel that some people think these mentors are just gonna come to you. And sometimes they do in the form of a coach that you're, you happen upon, but oftentimes we have to grab the mentor and yeah. allow them in. You know? And it is true. Like when that one person that you have so much respect for just says something that maybe they, you know, a week from then they forget about, but makes all the difference in your life. Yes. And that also goes to what I say in the world because now people have their eyes on me. So. Right. I need to- All those bravies running around with buns on top of their head. I love, (laughs) oh, I, uh, some buns, maybe, you know, some of them are boys and maybe they don't have a bun, Mm -hmm. maybe they do. It's the most adorable tribe of fans out there. Thank you. Yeah, it's really cool. And how you communicate with them with, with verse and poetry and the inspiration that you share, I think is really cool. And so like, so uniquely you. Thank you. I'm trying to give them something to imitate or to latch onto that I feel comfortable with them imitating or 
would have hoped that I could have latched onto when I was there in their shoes. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I don't think it's that useful to say, I just ran 120 miles a week at this minute average because that's not that useful to a 15-year-old girl. Like they don't need to run that many miles. Um, But they can put their hair up like me or they can go on a long run, whatever that means to them. Um, Or they can dare to have a big dream. They can dare to have a big dream. And, And I'm someone who will take your dreams very seriously. So like with my friends, I don't think I'm the person to call and like cry to because usually I just will try to navigate and, and figure out what the next the solution. Yeah. Where did the, so tell the story of how the Bravey thing started. Yeah, with the so poem. Bravey, um, Bravey started when I wrote a poem on social media, which was run like a Bravey, sleep like a baby, dream like a crazy, replace can't with maybe. And Bravey was this word, came from the word brave, but not a real word. And I think I think it stuck because so many of the words that, that I chased growing up felt very, um, that they felt very outward facing. Mm-hmm. So like strong, pretty, fierce, they, those felt like words that I presented to the, wor- to the world. And bravey, because it's not a real word, because it comes from the word brave, felt more like a choice, like an inward facing word that you assigned to yourself and that you decide exactly what that means to you. And I liked that. I liked giving the world something, giving myself something that I could simply choose to be. And it's also not telling you that you need to be brave. You just need to be brave e. Yeah, like you kind of just to be in the orbit of brave, right? Yeah, it's very, it's very inviting and non-threatening. <laughs> yes, I think so too. Right? Because <laughs> you know? you're just you're making choices to chase your dreams, and uh-huh. uh, it has um, it has a lightness to it. I think, yeah. and hopefully, it's playful because dream chasing dream chasing is hard enough that I think. Finding some lightness is, is right, good. Right, right. Um, and, and it becomes like a thing, this bravey thing explodes, becomes the name of your tribe. It becomes the name of your book. Yeah, well, that I give my editors credit yeah. for. Cause I was like, <laughs> I was like, we can't call the book bravey. No one knows what this is. And they're like, they, that's all they the will. reason to do it. Yeah. yeah. They're like, they will. They're like bravey. What is this? What is it? Tell um, me more. Yeah. I'm grateful to, um, to put something in the world that I feel is adding to the world. Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's a good tool and I think it's a, it's a good lesson to to tell yourself that you can just decide that you're something mm-hmm. um, and that it makes it more inevitable. Like when Jeremy and I have a goal or a dream, we usually talk about it as if it's real before it's real, whether it's we named our pug Bernini before she even existed. We were just like, when we get Bernini, 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 and then we get a pug. But I think it's the same with any dream we're chasing. We're like, talk about it as if it's real and put a label on it. And then the world and you will will right. Everything you know. tends to then coalesce around it. I think that's really powerful. I mean, anybody who's made an independent feature will tell you the same. Like, sure. you just start making it. Like, you just assume the yeah. money's going to happen, and all these element, like all the variables, the eight billion variables, will somehow come together. 
yes. but it starts with that belief and then the action on the belief, like just start moving forward as if it's all sorted out. Yes, and you know, that's the very opposite um, mindset of, I was just thinking about like when I was sick, I thought I knew the future in a way that was really unhealthy. Cause I was like the future, like it will be bad. This will never get better. And I feel like the minute we think we know exactly what's gonna happen, this is, it's a little bit of a shift of what you're just saying, but that's a that's actually a red flag. Like when you're like, this will never get better. Mm. Um, I think like a healthy mind is one that's like, you know, these are inevitable goals, but I don't really know how it's gonna happen or right. what, you know, like. But not letting the unknowing prevent you from from chasing it. Yeah, from chasing it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, on the Bravey poem thing, like you, this is not like a one-off, like you're a poet, like you study yeah. poetry at Dartmouth. I, I was the, yeah. graduated the top of my creative yeah. writing class and that took a lot of writing. <laughs> I yeah, I would, I would imagine it's yeah. reflected in your book. I mean, one of the things that that I love about the way that you wrote this book you know, most athlete memoirs are terrible. And it's generally because, in my opinion, because they're written by an athlete, um, typically with a ghostwriter near or at the end of their career. And they're used as like marketing tools to extend the longevity of that career or to try to create like interest in this person for sponsorship reasons or whatnot. And, and they're, they're like overly heroic and they just feel not dishonest, but not terribly honest either. Mm -hmm. And it's the rare person who can execute on an athlete memoir with a level of vulnerability and like, you know, emotional awareness that, that you have done here. And with, you know, all these writing chops that you have, it just makes for a very potent combination. And I love the way that it's, it's, it's very lyrical in the way that it's written in that, you know, it, there's a linear story, but it's not really about the linear story. Like you've extracted out the most, you know, emotional, um, important moments, and described those kind of, you know, the, it's it's more like a string of pearls than it is like oh, this happened, really then this sweet. happened, then this happened, and you know, just the honesty and the humor and the level of self awareness, I think, is really beautiful. Thank you. That's mm -hmm. that means a lot, and I know you know your stuff. I'm like, well, you know, you know as somebody who's written a book like this, yeah. I was embarrassed. Like, I was embarrassed for myself reading this book because no. I was like, this book is so much better than my <laughs> That's book. That's not good. I was like, I should have done it like that. Like, no. why did I do that? You know, this. Anyway, it's quite an accomplishment. Well, I really, really appreciate that, and it is definitely the proudest thing I've ever done. Yeah, I feel. Um, I feel like, man, it's so. It's fun when you've done something and it's about to be released in the world and you know that you did your best. Yeah. I really like that feeling. It's yeah. really exciting. And it's like a real thing that exists in the world. Yeah, it's a tangible yeah. thing and it's and we're and I'm not It's funny when you're like your editors are like there's no more changes and you're like okay, I accept it that this <laughs> is the this is it. Uh -huh. Um and T Tara Schuster was one of the blurbers and she said that it felt like a kind knife. Mm. And I thought that was like a really big compliment because I think what people are expecting in this book is like more 
um, poems and encouraging somethings. And those are in there, but those somethings came from something really dark and really challenging. And I think that what she said and what you said are really, um, really mean a lot to me uh, because it, it means that I communicated. And it's one thing to have an experience because I didn't need to write this book, honestly, for myself. I've had these experiences. I'm very happy with where I am. But I really wanted to work hard enough and find a way to communicate them. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other world. Mm-hmm. It's just putting it in a way where it translates and it speaks to people who don't know you, possibly. Right. right. And it, it, you don't, it, it, it is an athlete memoir, but it's really not about that. It's, it's about like, it's just about life. You know, and you don't shy away from the darkness. I mean, there's some really difficult stuff in there. You know, one of your one of your memories of your mom, like I, I just I was I, I was it was really painful to read. It was painful to yeah, watch. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, I it can't was, imagine. Um, it was so crazy. <laughs> some of that stuff is like, um, and it's so I don't know if you can relate, but when you're writing like a memoir, you're like, wow, is my life like worth is it like, you know, it means well, that you talk about indulgent. You, you're like, right? really? You thought, yeah, you're like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you thought you were worthy of writing mm-hmm. this. Like that takes a certain um, gusto, I think, just like chasing a dream. And you're like, I think I can do this. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I think I've like been to the to the peaks of, of some worlds and to the bottoms of some worlds. Mm-hmm. And that means that hopefully I can reach the people in between. Yeah. Um, and that's a unique role to be in because, you know, I know how much it meant when certain people said certain things to me, it, it went a hundred times further than if somebody else had said it. And we've said this on this, in this conversation before, but I recognize I was in a position to, say something and that the more detail I could go into with this book, like the more specific I would right. be, the more it would reach, right? Isn't that the rule of storytelling? The more specific we can get and the, the more, more specific, but also the more honest and the more vulnerable, right? Because that's that's where people can really find the emotional connection. Yeah, well, you know, what's funny about this last week with the New York Times thing is, I feel like I'm at a turning point right now where the truth is that I've worked really hard to make sure that my film, my acting stands on its own pillar and my running stand on, stands on its own pillar. And I actually finally feel that I've let those worlds talk to each other in this book mm-hmm. in a way that might allow me, and I feel it, to just be exactly who I am a little bit more comfortably. And I think that all comes from within, right? Like I'm in the Hollywood world, but I still feel like, oh, I didn't come up like all these actors did. I'm, I was spending a lot of time performing on a circular track or oval yeah. track. Um, and I think before I might've seen myself as needing to hide one world when I was in the other. And now I, I actually feel like it's okay that I have come, that I am exactly mm. who I am. And I, I wish I had felt that way sooner, but I think it's okay that I feel that way now. It's interesting that you say that because your movies are so reflective of, 
of you know your emotional experience as an athlete. But like those, they are, yeah. they do stand on their own, but they're also inextricably linked to each other. But that was a, a, a smart decision as a filmmaker to tell a story in a world that I'm in and know mm -hmm. and have access to. Right. Like that was a businesswoman knowing, I mean, and a creative person knowing that the best story I can tell is my own or the world I'm in. So, and I think all filmmakers do that, even if it's an emotional reality right. they know and not an actual reality. Right, so I think that was still my filmmaking cap on. It wasn't me saying, I really wish these worlds were one. It mm -hmm. was just, what's the best movie I can make? Um, and that was the best movie I could make. Right, because they're, it's inspired by your own experiences and it's something that you know very well. And it's interesting in looking at the book, like things that actually happen to you are then translated into some narrative that shows up in one of your movies through one of the characters. Yeah. You know? I, I wonder, I think a lot of filmmakers are like that, right? A lot of like writer directors. Oh, I'm, sure, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. So I'm just doing what they do. Well, it's crazy. I'm doing it, what it's they like, do. <laughs> look at your book. I'm like looking at the people that blurbed your book and it's like, it's just this weird Venn diagram of, yeah. of worlds. It's like Shalane Flanagan and then like, wait, Jay Duplass, like Mindy Kaling, like what is going on here? Like it's, yeah. it's wild that you, you know, that you have your feet planted so firmly in, in these two different worlds and how they intersect well, in this book. And those people have been, I mean, Jay, as an example, you know that I met him on a run here. Like I met oh, him wow. randomly. Uh -huh. So he's a runner and- See, just, I just figured you guys are in some cool Hollywood group where you all sit around and share each other's screenplays or something. Right, oh, we are now, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure um, you are. But the truth is that I met him while I was running mm. and it was pouring rain and he was running, we were both on long runs and I recognized him and I just listened to his book and I, I was running with a girl who had no idea who he was. And I was like, we have to stop. I'm sorry. Like I right. have to, you know, you know, those moments yeah, where you're yeah, like, yeah. this will never happen again. And he knew who I was because he knew Nick Kroll and he had seen Olympic dreams. Mm. But, um, and I feel like this is something that I, I try to make the most of opportunities. And like in that instance, I was like, can I send you, you know, like a link to our movie or whatever. And right. we eventually got lunch and he's a mentor now, but that was, um, he he's someone who there are a few people who I think like understand both worlds and who are helping helping me see myself in their world like and that means a lot to me that's like that's cool uh, that's really yeah. cool so but the point of that I think is just that like I'm so I'm very grateful to to that to the people who do that for mm -hmm. me um well, and your very your your awareness of that, your consciousness of that, is reflected in how you communicate to your audience. Like I can tell that you're very mindful of making sure that you're fulfilling that role for the people that are out there looking for you to give them a lead. Hopefully, I hope it. Um, I hope the book also gives them a more realistic view of how it happens. Right. Because if you see someone just where they are in any one moment today, mm -hmm. you probably would assume any number of paths got them there that aren't the real way that got them there. And when you're an Olympian, that's on steroids. Whatever it we is. We just think that Olympians are, you know, they just come out of the womb fully baked exactly. as these superheroes. Yeah, and it it's usually more circuitous mm. or unexpected. 
But what's that? What message does that send to kids? Then is it like don't chase the Olympic dream, or it's just like chase the Olympic dream, but make sure you're also manifesting your full self? What are we telling them? Well, I don't know. You tell me what you're <laughs> yeah. telling them. You're the one yeah. who's doing the telling. I mean, I would say that that if I had to translate what you're trying to put out there, it's 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 saying it's okay to have a big dream. It's okay to feel different. Understand that it's hard. Anything. Um, worth doing or doing really well is going to be difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, but embrace those challenges. Like, be brave. Like, in everything that you do, like brave bravery is the recurring mantra. It's like I don't know how many times it's said in your movies, and it's the title of your book. Like, this is this is the thing. And bravery is to is to you know exercise courage in the face of fear. It's not about not being afraid. It's about having the, having the willingness to, you know. Try your best. Deal with the, fa- the think, fear, right. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's about trying your best. So maybe that's also it, that as long as you're trying your best, it'll, it won't go as you thought it would, mm-hmm. but you just keep, you keep trying your best. Right. And, it, and it is brave to try your best because trying your best means if you fail, you'll know that you did try your best. Whereas sandbagging is like where you purposefully don't try your best so that later you can tell yourself that narrative. Right. So perhaps the bravest thing of all is to try your best because then whatever happens to you, you know was like your honest effort. Right, and to try your best requires you to be vulnerable. Like yeah. when you're not, when you're sandbagging, you're, you're hiding, right? You're yeah. indulging that fear and you're giving yourself an out. And it's scary to say, I'm gonna remove all the excuses and put it all out there and whatever happens, happens. Yeah. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. 
Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I had a question that just came up that I wanted to ask you. Can I ask you? You can, but this is a podcast about you. I know, but it doesn't matter. It's always going to come back. <laughs> all right. You're very good at making it all the ways come back. <laughs> Do you like, um, because I was thinking about um, like manifesting your greatest self. And one of the things is like the people you spend time around. Cause it just occurred mm. to me that like, it, you know, with your life, you've structured it in a way where you spend time with people in this context that, that maybe you admire or that you'd like to spend time with. Mm-hmm. Um, do you purposefully put yourself in situations to be around people like that? And do you also take an effort to not be around people who don't do that for mm-hmm. you, whatever that is? Um, well, to the former point, a hundred percent. What do you think? This whole podcast is basically a grand, you know, scheme to be able to like <laughs> hoodwink cool people like yourself to spend time. You know, like I hold them hostage here and force them to answer all these questions, and then I cool. and then I incorporate them into my life. Like it's very indulgent and self-serving in that regard. Like I seek out people that inspire me, and I give them a compelling reason to come and meet me by amplifying and, and sharing what they have to have to say. And, and, you know, quite often, like these people then become people in my life, like in the yeah. way that you met Jay, like a lot of guests that I've had are my friends now. And that's the most incredible gift because these are people I can call on for advice or who have made themselves available to me. And I don't take that lightly. I don't take it for granted at all. Like it's a huge, huge gift. And it's just been the most, expanding, like expansive experience that I could have ever structured for myself. Um, To the the point about avoiding, you know, it's the adage is you're the average of like the, however many people you spend the most time with, right? So choose wisely, like spend your time with high vibrating people that are, that, that, you know, are demonstrating characteristics that you aspire to manifest in your own life. Of course, that means spending less time with people who are dragging you down. That's a yeah. little bit more difficult for me, but um, I feel like I've done a pretty good job of, of over time setting healthier boundaries around that kind of thing. That's cool, yeah. What about you? I, yes, I think that I'm doing a better job of that as well, um, but also recognizing that I think separating the work from quality time in my life. Mm -hmm. And that includes, you know, when Jeremy and I, we work together. So separating our work time from our quality time together, but also understanding um, in my own life, like there are circumstances where we must, we have colleagues, we have interactions, and hopefully those are people we love, but there's sometimes there's work, right? But, But making sure that I preserve the time that I need to like re inflate or fill myself back up because that will, Mm. you know, be important. How does the athlete mindset contribute to your creative pursuits? Like it's, you know, most people who are kind of involved in that world don't come from an athlete background and certainly not as robust an athlete background as you have. Do you you feel like there are tools and tactics that you've learned as a runner that 
benefit you when it comes to you know breaking a story for a script or you know executing on what needs to be done to get this movie up on its feet for sure there's like so let's just take uh the idea of like writer's block okay so like people have created this idea that there is such thing mm. and i think that would be like showing up to a workout and i know you don't always feel great every day but it would be like being like I'm I just not, I can't even try. <laughs> like I can't even take a step. Yeah. And uh-huh. it's like, okay, it might not go the way you think it's going to go, but you can warm up and you can do certain things that will point you toward success. And as athletes, we put on our outfit that will set us up for success. Maybe we lay out our clothes the night before. We eat the food we know is going to set us up for success. We mm. go to the uh, the trail that we know we love or go to the track. You know, we meet people. So there are um, things that we put in place to show up and give ourselves the best chance to try our best. And I think with the creative world, it's similar. Like wear the outfit that makes you feel like you can write, sit at the desk that you like, use the pen that you like or computer, you know, get the right lighting, like set it up for yourself. And I think that has been one thing that I Mm -hmm. do a good job of is like, curating the environment to try my best. To make it conducive to, yeah. to success. But at the same time, there is the big difference in my mind is that as an athlete, it's much more binary, especially as an endurance athlete. It's like, if I, okay, if I put in the hundred mile weeks and I do these things, mm-hmm. like you, you're, you're setting yourself up for, you know, the best result. Like it's, it, you know, yeah. it's mathematical in some regards, but yeah. creativity is, is elusive and mysterious and doesn't always come when you summon it. Yes, but I think that then, I think we can point to um, the rule of thirds, which I was told Mm. by a coach, this is in the book, but I think it's life changing. I love the rule of thirds. It's amazing. So my, my Olympic coach, told me after a particularly challenging workout where I could not hit my splits before going to the Rio Olympics, that that was okay. It was the rule of thirds. And he was an Olympian. So I was, you know, I always soaked in everything he said. And I was like, what's, what's the rule of thirds? And he said, you're, when you're chasing a dream or doing anything hard, you're meant to feel good a third of the time, okay, a third of the time and crappy a third of the time. And if the ratio is roughly in that range, then you're doing fine. So today was the crappy day along your dream chasing. Right. And if the ratio is off, like you feel too good all the time or too bad, then you you got to look at if you're fatiguing or, or not trying hard enough or pushing yourself. So I think with those days that you're talking about where like creativity doesn't come or doesn't feel great, you still show up because maybe that's your crappy day, but it doesn't mean that you quit the goal doesn't mean you freak out. It means that you show up and live through that crappy mm-hmm. that or that dip because you're chasing a dream and you're doing something hard. So I think I've been able to embrace the ups and downs of the creative dream chasing by way of understanding the parallel in the athletic world. And likewise, in running, I rarely win. Like I've won races, but to not win a race doesn't mean that I haven't done really well. And there's a lot of no's you get in Hollywood, like when you're trying to make a movie. And I think just being able to weather the no's, like weather all of that and and take it not as a loss. Mm -hmm. Um, And to take criticism, 
like blood work. I think that's another thing that was oh, an epiphany. Tell me more about that. I like this. Okay, so blood work, right? If you don't get your blood checked, tested, it doesn't mean that you don't have low iron or high cholesterol. It just means you haven't found out about it, right? right. It's facts, it's blood work. And I think similarly with like creative criticism or feedback we might get on a script or whatever, if I don't ask for the feedback, it doesn't mean that I did a good job. It just means that I'm refusing to know what I could have done better. Mm. And looking at it like blood work has felt a lot less emotional and offensive. It's just like, this is just feedback. It's just my blood work. And I want to have it so that I can improve. And that helped me a lot to right. flip that switch. Right, like resiliency plus the hustle and the dedication of getting up and showing up on days when you don't feel like it are things you learn as an athlete that of course are life lessons. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, I'm reminded of an anecdote that I recently heard um, Timothy, Timothy Oliphant uh, tell. Wow. He was, he was uh, on my friend, John Moffat's podcast. And he, he, a lot of people don't know this, but like Timothy Oliphant was an amazing swimmer, like at USC, he was like very good. What, he didn't make the Olympics, but he was like a very yeah. outstanding athlete. And when he decided he wanted to be an actor and you know, came into the awareness that like it's one in a hundred thousand or 10,000 that make it, yeah. you know, the odds are stacked against you. While he was waiting tables, you know, he would ask these other people who were trying to be actors like, well, what are you doing? And they'd be like, well, um, you know, I'm, I'm just going to auditions or, you know, my uncle knows a guy who might know a guy who's gonna set me up here. Meanwhile, like Timothy's like taking classes, like he approached it like mm -hmm. an athlete, like what, yes. are, what are the steps that I need to take to put myself in the best position for success? Yeah. And he's like, when he would hear those stories, he's like, well, those are, that's one less person I have to worry about you oh, know, wow. competing against. And it's interesting how the, my point being that there is something to be said for the athlete mindset approach to creative pursuits. Mm -hmm. We look at creative pursuits as like these these unpredictable you know realms in which you know not always the best people succeed, and mm -hmm. some people who are less deserving are rewarded. Like it's very much not a meritocracy, but there are things that you can do to put yourself in a position to succeed when that moment arises. Yes, and and to build a stronger foundation, right? Because the people for whom they have random connections or this and that, it's easy to feel jealous of, of people who you perceive to be having a shortcut or two, but it's, if you can always like lean back on a strong backbone of whatever that means, whether it's mm. his, his preparations of his classes or whatever that means to you, like that backbone will, it'll be there and, um, but I do think that every artist has to face a moment, probably every athlete too, where you ask yourself, are you interested in this goal or are you committed? And that's, that's, a, um, that's a big difference, mm -hmm. right? Where if you are merely interested in a goal, you're going to find the reasons why it wasn't possible for you or you're gonna, you're gonna back out when it, when it hurts or when it, you get one no. And if you're committed, then you will keep showing up. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I feel about yeah. that. How does it work working with Jeremy? It's great. So 
I think Jeremy and I, similar to you, are thriving when we're doing these things we're so passionate about. So we, we're not misaligned in that. We're very much aligned that we enjoy our work and we enjoy working together. It's a different way to love someone when you have a common goal because it makes us both family and teammates, which are different, right? Like family, you love no matter what. And you know, it's, uh-huh. it's family friends. I think you choose and that's a different kind of relationship. You don't rely on them for anything. And teammates, you have a goal. It's very, very fun. And it's a really enriching experience to share a goal with someone. It's hard too, because you kind of need them to show up and you, you're leaning on them as a teammate. Um, we have different strengths. So we've learned more about like what each of us brings to the table. And I, I would not be where I am even as an athlete without him. Cause it's so much a blurred line of like getting it done, whatever it takes, mm-hmm. whatever it means, you know? Whether- but there's no way in making a movie that you're not gonna have conflicts over oh, sure. what you think is the right way to do something. So how do you navigate that and keep your relationship intact? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I mean, we you know, I think you go back to the rule of thirds. Like being in love is also a dream of sorts. And so it doesn't always feel good. Like it does feel crappy a third right. of the time, but that's because I'm not married to myself. Um so, <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's not always going to be, you know, and when we are working on something, I think we instinctually know when, when to like give or take, like we respect each other enough to respect the other person's idea, even if it wasn't our own. Um, and we have tried to put into place vocabulary that allows us to move forward during conflict more gracefully. So for example, we will use this word recalibrate, which basically just means if something needs to shift, like I need to try to respond to his ideas in this way, even though my instinct my whole life has been to respond in this other way, if I can have the maturity to just recalibrate and never go back to that old way, and he can allow me to be a mature person who can grow, that's a kind thing for him and for me. So we use this word recalibrate when we need to like grow and grow instantly. And I think this harkens back to that word bravey of like, you can choose to be a bravey right now and then you're bravey for the rest of your life. And I think with recalibrating, um, that can be anything from I'm no longer a person who apologizes every two seconds, which I used to be. Yeah. I'm just not that anymore. So I think that has helped us to grow when we need to, to level up. Um, and you have a crazy amount of emotional maturity. How old are you? I'm 30. <laughs> I can't. 30. I'm, but, I mean, uh, don't even get me started I'm on not what I was doing anymore. when I was 30, but like I'm that is impressive. Like, well, it's not, I mean, and it's not always, uh, that takes a lot of, we don't always, right? We like, we are normal people mm-hmm. who fight, right? Um, but we really love each other more than any of that, any of these 
Uh, you know what? I think it's also just that this whole film world and the running world, they're sandboxes and we're playing in them, mm-hmm. right? Like I went through this depression with Jeremy and like that was the worst thing, right? So I think also we have the over our, the overall stability and safety to know that we're playing. Mm-hmm. That's always important too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you just, I mean, you, you haven't lived in Los Angeles that long, right? So when you were making these movies, you weren't even living here. So you were kind of outside of, you yes. know, the sort of downside or the, you know, toxic aspects of, you know, quote unquote Hollywood. Yes, and even now we live in the Valley, just right. like you do. And so, <laughs> and I think right. that's a little but bit- But not so out of it that you're not gonna run into JD Plus when you go running. That was, but right. that's, oh, but that, <laughs> the feeling that that could happen, that's uh, amazing. Well, that's like, a crazy thing about living in LA or, you know, in New York too, but like, you know, you could just run into anybody. You can. And these people that you look up to who are doing the thing that you aspire to do are like around at the grocery store. Yes, and before that, I felt like I needed to create these interactions and that's why podcasts are important mm-hmm. because when I lived in these mountain towns, I craved those like uh, those interactions. I craved like the spontaneity, you know, I, I craved mentorship basically uh-huh. and I was living in a tiny town. And so I think I created those moments by listening to podcasts. Mm-hmm. And I still love podcasts and audiobooks, but it has a different role in my life than it did when I never thought there would be a possibility to run into someone, which was mostly the case when I was in Eugene, you know, for example. Right, right. Well, the mentors are just different there. You're gonna run into running mentors and yep, athletic that's mentors. That's true, you know? that's very true. But um, yeah, I don't know. We have to talk about Olympic dreams. Can we talk about this? We could talk like about I, it. I, I, I look at Tracktown and as insane as that was to compete in the Olympics and make a feature film in the same year, it's like, all right, well, how can we up the degree of difficulty? I know we're gonna make a movie, a feature, a narrative feature film in the middle of the Olympic games in the Olympic village. It was so fun. So crazy. It was so fun. So It looked fun, it looked hard. I mean, it didn't yes. come off looking hard, but I, I was, you know, as I'm watching it, I'm like, how the fuck did they do this? This is unbelievable. Well, we made friends with the Team USA chiropractor for their bobsled team because Jeremy, so we had a one one man band. It was Jeremy, Nick Kroll and I, and Jeremy was the cinematographer, mm. the director and the sound guy because these permissions to go into the village are so difficult and rare. Uh, so Jeremy was in the most pain, I would say, by carrying all the equipment. Right. <laughs> um, but it was really uh, felt like the feeling you'd want to have on any set, which is intimate, like friends trying to like pull something off. Like it was a pure adventure. Right. Um, and I feel I felt so happy there. I felt so happy and. I was healing actually a broken SI and I was in pain, but I was more happy than I was in pain. Um, I remember that. I remember it was like a little bit painful, but I was so joyful that it it like overtook mm. that. It's like this perfect melding of the two worlds that you care most about, like coming together for this special experience. I mean, we should say the movie is is about um, an Olympian that you play and her 
uh, her experience of, of competing at the Olympics and dealing with um, the emotions of the aftermath and this encounter that she has with a dentist played, played by Nick Kroll, inspired by this real dentist that you had become friendly with when you were in Rio um, and, and what ensues with their relationship and how you know, their pain meets and how they, they both kind of come away from that experience a little bit more complete. And I, I, to me, it felt there's definitely um, overtones of, uh, of um, lost in translation in the movie. Like there's a similar sensibility to it, but there's also a little light dusting of curb your enthusiasm oh. at moments with Nick, you know, like when he's interacting with these athletes, like that is hilarious. And it was cool because these athletes, um, so these were all real athletes competing in that Olympics. And I would find them in the dining hall or in the game room. And if they didn't look super stressed, like they weren't about to compete, if they looked relaxed, I would mm -hmm. ask if they wanted to come to a scene for this movie we were making with Nick Kroll. And what was cool is that athletes were very used to being on camera and being interviewed, but that's a certain um, posture right. that we have. And there's certain ways that we talk. And because of this small crew that we had, and because Nick is so good with people, mm -hmm. um, he was able to draw out, I think a real human side of them and a different side than, than the typical coverage might offer. Um, they were just, being themselves. And it's it's all pretty much improv, right? Like when you yeah. see these athletes in the dentist chair and Nick Kroll starts talk he starts talking about, you know, his ex-fiance yes. and how he's having a hard time. And the look on the faces of the athletes are yes. like, what am I supposed to do yes. with this? <laughs> it was so great. And and that was partly because Nick knew his character really, really well. Mm -hmm. And that's like when we do improv in movies, the most important thing is that we know who we are. So that if we're in any scenario, we know what our characters would do. Um, so that was like, that was, you know, speaking back to how, how do you compare the athletics to the arts? Just preparation, right? We were prepared so that whatever that circus of an environment mm -hmm. brought, we could, we could do it. And you have a ticking clock, right? Like this has to be completed by the time the games are are done because you're not gonna be able to recreate that environment. For sure. And you don't wanna get in anyone's way. Like right. the last thing you wanna do is like alter someone's Olympic experience, the real Olympic experience. So we were really careful right. about that. But you're in, I mean, just so people understand, like you're you're in the Olympic dining hall and it's yeah. filled with athletes who are eating and you're just navigating around them. So there's this documentary kind of vibe yeah. to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And it it was such a privilege because the best part about the Olympics to me as an athlete was the village experience. Like the village is pure magic. It is it is everybody with their guard down. 24 hour dining hall, uh -huh. everyone's in these costumes. Like, I mean, they're, they're uniforms. You have to wear your country's uniform. It's like a Wes Anderson movie, but real, real life. And, and, mm. um, and to be able to like give people a peek into that world and, and do it in a way that, uh, that wasn't documentary that like had a narrative through line that could have happened mm -hmm. was such a like thrill and such a joy and, the thing I was most nervous for, same with Tracktown, 
was when my Olympic peers saw the movie. So um, Gus Kenworthy was at the premiere and Morgan- well, he's in the you know, movie. And was in the movie. Yeah. But I was really nervous for what he would think, just like I was nervous for what my running peers would think of Tracktown because even though I want this movie to speak to a broader cinematic audience, I want it to speak to the world that I'm representing first to make sure, you know, I want it to be authentic. Right. And it was such a, um, I felt really grateful that people who are Olympians were like, yeah, I would show my kids that one day just to show them what it was like to be at the Olympics. Mm. You know, it felt, it was what it was like. Yeah, there's an emotional honesty to it. I mean, you see, you get glimpses of the high highs and what we, you know, as average people would project that experience might be about, but you shine a spot, it's really about, those moments in between, like what does it yeah. feel like after you're done and you're just wandering around the village trying to figure out what's gonna come next or sitting alone in the cafeteria or going back to your dorm room and not really gelling with your roommate and just feeling lonely and then feeling guilty that you feel lonely because you're you're basically living your dream at the same time. Yeah, and that Olympians just don't, we don't prepare for the moment afterwards because if we did, we probably wouldn't get there in the first place and we probably wouldn't do very well if we were thinking about anything but that. Right, you can't, you, know? you can't plan beyond August. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's, it's funny because um, I've noticed that that is true of other worlds too. Like I, and, and I mentioned this, but I met, um, I met Jimmy Kimmel on our press tour for Olympic Dreams when Nick was on his show. And we talked about this like post-Olympic depression, like just the subject of the movie. And he was like, that's mm. exactly how I felt after I hosted the Oscars. And I was like, oh, like this resonates with people who have had singular goals. Right. And there's this dip after where it's normal, but if you're not prepared for it, which most of us aren't, it's such a bizarre feeling. You see it with, Music. I mean, you hear about it with musicians, they play a big show, but then, you know, they're on tour and it's a different city every night and they're just alone in their hotel room afterwards. So the right. weird juxtaposition of like this extreme experience followed by this kind of uh, weird, you know, liminal space where you're just by yourself. Right, right. I, um, I am sure there's that in, in every world. Well, the only thing though in, your, in, in the movie was, I was like, where are her teammates? Like right. she, she would be like, realistically, like she would have a team and there would be a coach there and there would be people around for her. So you created a more extreme version of yeah. that experience. You know, not everybody has a coach. Like there are country heads, but most people can't have their coach in the village with them. There are so few But there's people. a team, like a team Olympic coach. There's a team Olympic coach. So Penelope was supposed to be from a, un. Um, like a unident like any country uh -huh. to make um, that was sort of the IOC's hope, and so she was not really from a designated place, and um, that was just a universal athlete is what they called uh -huh. her, um, which I was down with. But yeah, certainly, I mean, but at the same time, when I think about my experience in Rio, I was alone most of the time. Mm. Part of that was by choice. That makes like, me so sad. Wait, why though? Because I had so, I, I was so, 
I was all eyeballs. I was like taking it all in mm -hmm. and I was sitting with a different person at the dining hall every night. Like I remember one day I sat and I ate with this girl and I did not know who she was because before she competed, but it was it was Katie Ledecky and the swimmer. And right. we had just like a normal lunch together and it was just very early in the games. And those opportunities came about because I chose to go to the dining hall alone. Right. So I did that by choice so that I could have a different experience. Except when the dentist asked you to hang out, you said no, or you didn't show up. I knew what, <laughs> I knew what happened at the, at the village pool, okay? okay no right. savory things. <laughs> all right, I'm just kidding. I hear you. Um, by the way, like give Gus Kenworthy a movie immediately. Like that guy's a movie star. Like oh, he, was, he was so naturalistic in his acting. Yeah. He crushed it. He acts, he like me, has these two, he, he is multi-hyphenate and multi-interested. And that was cool for me actually, uh -huh. because I hadn't met so many people like me. And I told him, I was like, this is cool to know that we both, it, it helps me to know that you exist. Cause he, uh, it felt like I was meeting somebody right. like-minded, you know? Like Kismet, yeah. Has he done other movies? He um, was in American Horror Story. Oh, he so, was, oh, I didn't mm -hmm. know that. So I think he, he will do more of oh, that's that. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Really cool. Um, you talked about this with, with Dave Chang, but I thought it was worth spending a few moments on. The moment where after you've raced and we don't really know how you did, we know that you're not thrilled, but there's a creative choice to not basically show the scoreboard and what place you came in or anything like that. It's just a quiet moment of reflection where you're processing what's going on. And then you witness um, a medal ceremony and you see these women getting their medals and you're having an emotional moment with that as you're watching. And then the aftermath of that where the grips, you know, the gaffers or whoever like come out and remove the podium and you're like, oh yeah, this is just a big, show and yes. it's like on to the next. It's like the circus is in town for a very brief moment of time and we're just putting on a big show. I love that you noticed that because, and this is where I think you and Jeremy will get along very well um, because that was his, uh, that was his, his like holy Jeremy's vision. And I think it's, he likes, seeing like the mechanics of things like that, that we don't see. Like on NBC, mm -hmm. you see the medal ceremony, you do not see it being cleaned up. And that was part of the, the fun of Olympic dreams was the showing the, the texture underneath and like what, what happens the moment after. Right. Um, and I really love that you pointed that out because uh, it's when you're at these events in person, as I'm sure anyone who, who, who is involved in other like events, mm -hmm. there's so much more that goes into it than just the event. Right, the it's ceremony. like when you're at Disneyland and there's a whole like city underneath your feet yeah. of people that make that whole place function. Yeah, it's so strange and it's not, um, it's not sad. I think it's just interesting, uh, right? Well, I think it, it, it gives you perspective yeah. like, oh, I thought this was like one thing, but I realized like maybe this isn't 
everything I thought it was. Mm-hmm. You could put a sad spin on it. I don't think it's necessarily sad, yes. but maybe like I see it as more transactional. Like this is a commercial enterprise. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. Which maybe is cynical. Yeah, or maybe- Because I, 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 I love yeah. the Olympic dream. I'm not casting yeah, aspersions yeah. on that, but the production of the Olympics is different from the aspiration of the Olympic dream. Yeah, but at the same time, like when you think about all the volunteers or all the people that make those moments happen, it's also cool to think about that it is so much more than just the athletes and the spectators. Right. Like there is this whole, like, um, you know, there's the there are those people that make it mm. actually happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually got to interact with quite a few of those people because when we were, you know, when we shot in, for example, the um, the Olympic Stadium with the flame with nobody in there, right? We had people um, uh, helping us like open those gates who knew we were there to do the movie, and just to know like there there are all these people who have been at so many games, but on the other side, they're they're the ones making it happen. Uh-huh. Uh, it's kind of cool. Like it's yeah. kind of like when you think about like the chaperones at the dance, you're like, yeah, we need those. We need mm-hmm. the people to help make prom prom. And um, it's Well, you cool. give some attention to those people in recounting your own experience just before competing in the book where oh, yeah. you talk about like the timing chip person and they're t- the people yeah. that are telling you go here. And like some people are very detached from that role and some people are like very nurturing. And, yes. but just recognizing that there are all these human beings that are like, you know, the grease to all the, to the engine. And they are not your parents and they are not your coach. <laughs> right. And right. And yeah. that's where you're like, well, uh-huh. aren't the coaches there? And it's like, actually quite a bit of the Olympic experience is, is you taking you're it away in. From and, that. Yeah, you're away from that. And that can really scare people because so I think that where people go wrong with, I, I think the right approach to the Olympics is to not see it like any other event, mm. to see it as something exceptional and different. When we try to sterilize it and create it to be just like every other race or every other experience, we it will never be that. It is so different. And the people that I knew who tried to recreate their comfort zone didn't do as well mm. because it's not your comfort zone. It's different. Right. Um, and maybe right. that's like a lesson for any thing we've never done before. Like it will be different and control what you can control, but also embrace that some of these things are just gonna be different. Yeah, I mean, I understand the impulse to try to reduce it down to size so that it becomes manageable because when your whole life is oriented around that moment, it's very overwhelming, right? So to say like, I'm just gonna make this like every other race, but then you're less resilient when you arrive and you're told to do all these things and you're kind of instructed to go here and there and it's all very different. That's gonna throw you off and destabilize you and perhaps undermine the performance that you're trying to create for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, If you could be in the village, what was your, where would you like to be? Or what was like the most? 
I mean, I'm obsessed with the Olympics, but I've never attended an Olympics. So I don't know what that experience would be like. I have lots of friends who've been Olympians, but you know, it was cool in the movie. I was like, oh, that's what it looks like inside. Oh. You know, the thing, it just looked like really cold and like a bunch of really tents, cool. yep, <laughs> you that's know? That's sort of what it feels it was, like. It, it, it pulled the veneer off like the glamor, you know, mm-hmm. projection that I had, I think. You're like, oh, there's a bunch of young people. Yeah, a bunch of kids you know, walking out. around. And you, in the book, you, you, you describe it as summer camp, basically. Yeah, that's how it felt. Mm-hmm. I mean, Rio was very romantic. Rio was not cold. Right. Rio was very, very romantic. Um, I guess the Winter Olympics are romantic in their own way, though. Everyone's huddled and yeah, just need to keep each other warm. Or right. <laughs> I know. It seems. I think I'd rather be at the summer games. There, yeah, but it does. It did look like being in the cafeteria was cool because that's where so you're going to have those collisions with all those interesting people and the people watching. And you recreate with Gus something that you know you talked about in the book. This idea of like trying to imagine what sport all of these athletes play and like what role they have, and it's pretty cool. It was so fun. The dining yeah. hall has the best people watching. Yeah. It's simply the best. Um, it it should be mentioned that you can't just go to the Olympics and make a movie. Like the, no. you, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but you got the support of the IOC because they had seen Tracktown or whoever the person in charge had and granted you this unprecedented access. Like you, you basically could go wherever you wanted. Yes, this was very rare. Um, the president of the Olympics was, was really taken by Tracktown, which he saw um, randomly on a flight, which is the same, that's the same with PTA, saw it randomly on right. a flight. So thankful for those airline, you know, distribution deals. Well, and very- also just when you create something and you put it out in the world, you don't know, you, you don't never know. know who it's gonna connect with. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure you feel that way about this podcast where anyone can find it. It is weird. Is yeah. it weird? Well, it's weird that like your friend is a fan, like that's an example yes. of that, right? Yes, mm-hmm. it was, that was like, that put it in perspective for me where I was like, wow, this really, you know, these, we make things and we can't always know or control mm-hmm. where they're going, but. You have the head of the IOC and PTA and I have Amanda. What's her name? Amanda, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. She's so, it's, this is. And I will take Amanda every time. That's, you know what? That's the right decision. Uh-huh. She is, um, she's my best friend since two years old and. Uh, she's she appears to be the only friend in my book. I think too. I was uh-huh. like, I realized. Oh wow! Because sometimes you know the characters, we, it's important to keep it relatively mm. simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is also. Well, you changed <laughs> a few names. We did. Yeah. Yes. So I'm sure you also worked with a team to know what was smart to say and what not to say. I wish I could tell you that I did, but I didn't. We had a you lawyer. Had a team. We had a lawyer oh, wow. to make sure that. Um, I didn't have any of that. They were like, that looks good. Wow, that's, we had a lawyer. I ended up changing, so I got to rewrite it. I did a new edition of it and I and I went back and changed a bunch of that kind of stuff. Cause it was not, you know, like I wish I had had more awareness around that. Yeah, I guess it's just important that, I mean, there were certain people like um, with Maya Rudolph's chapter and with the chapter where I mentioned um, interactions with Bill Hader. Like I, I made sure to talk to them and share the chapter with them mm-hmm. and get their blessing because I felt right. like I 
those names, I wanted to have them in there because it was important that it was them, but it was also important to me that they felt comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, it was more like, you know, the virginity lost stories and things like that, where right. it's like, these names will. Yeah, of course. So you're telling some story about something that happened in high school or somebody yeah. behaved badly. There's no reason to use, no, use the names. It's not useful. I think like right. this, this like, it's just not useful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that. So you have a TV show that you guys yes. are working on now, right? Man. Yes. So. Jeremy and I, um, the creative world is a lot like playing tennis where you, the ball will be in your court for something and then you hit it out of your court. I'm sure you can relate and you don't know when you're going to get it back in certain scenarios. And that's why it's important to have multiple projects at once mm-hmm. because you don't want to just be waiting there with idle hand. Like to, to have nothing to do is your choice. And so we we always have multiple creative projects going on. And right now the book is obviously a big focus releasing it. And then this TV show opportunity came about after the Rio Olympics. And I can't say so much about it other than that it's very exciting and set in the Olympic village world. And it's going to be fabulous. And it also feels like um, when you shift from one event to the next, another event in running where I've only made feature films and now we're learning the television world Mm -hmm. and we're still making feature films and have those going on. But I'm sure you can relate to, I'm still playing the same sport, but it's a different event. And Mm -hmm. there are things to learn about television that are different than than feature. Yeah, hundred percent. Meanwhile, you're going from 10,000 meters to the marathon. Exactly. So I'm I'm trying to switch events and the marathon is still a mystery to me, I'll be honest, but I'm still curious about it. So- But you had a, when was that? You you ran like a PR not that long ago? I ran a nine minute PR this year, but I know that I, that I have more in me and that's because I, it's a feeling of where your mind and your body are on the same page and I started to get that in the 10K. Like I mm-hmm. certainly felt it in Rio and I haven't felt it yet in the marathon. And so I know that I have potential still. How many marathons have you run? Two. Right, so how could you possibly have it well, fully dialed? You couldn't, I suppose, or you could, I only ran five 10Ks in my life so far. So it's like, <laughs> it's not like- Is that true? That's true. Wow. I think Rio was my fifth or something. Or Rio might have even been my fourth. That's like I didn't, crazy. I'm a late bloomer in the sport and I don't think it's how many times you've run the event. I think it's like I think uh you know, I I don't think it's just dependent on that, but it does mm. help. You know, the experience helps. What about you? I mean, what what Look at you trying to turn the table. I'm always on. I'm trying gonna, to turn no, it on. I let you do it once or twice, but we're <laughs> done with that. So I still want to um, run another marathon. I want to break right. the Greek record. And, um, uh, whatnot. The Olympic qualifying standard got really rough this year. Oh my gosh! It? Yeah, they dropped it down significantly by like 15 minutes. Yeah, I think that is going to change the dynamic at the Olympics, where. Um, It'll change it a bit, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it, if a standard is more accessible, it means that you're definitely getting the best in the world, not just the best 
or you're getting the best of the world when it's accessible. And the, the faster and faster the standard gets, the more you're getting the best in the world. Mm-hmm. So it just, it's a shift, right. I think. So you still have to, you still would have to drop a little bit of time for you to make that standard and yes. compete for Greece, right? So how is it looking for Tokyo? Well, that, that time is competitive, but doable. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about it. And I think part of it has been where and when are the racing opportunities? And there've been a few, but it's normally because of COVID, it's normally not the case that you're wondering, will I get a chance to race safely? It's normally like, can I run this time? Right. And now there's both of those factors. And so most of COVID I've been focused, well, first of all, I was supposed to run a race in March and I ended up getting, I went over to Greece. You got stuck. For five right? months. Like I was supposed to be there for like three weeks. And so that was a really, you know, life-changing experience. Um, and I shifted, you know, I changed coaches out of necessity cause I was over there. Mm-hmm. And I also shifted my focus once the Olympics was pushed to working on my weaknesses and just trying to use this time um, and it's still what I'm doing. And so my goal is to race in the like, I think like second half of spring. Uh-huh. If things, I'm hoping the world shifts, but I'm also trying to respect that there's a pandemic right. going on, yeah. you know? It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So what are those weaknesses? Yes. So I think- I know you're working with this like trainer guy in yeah. Woodland Hills, right? You were sharing about that. So I was like, who is this? I, I yeah. need to go see this guy. Oh, he's amazing. You gotta so, hook me up. Um, Dag and Monica are, so I have my Greek coach who worked a lot with me on drills and agility. And so like, I really tapped back into the more athletic side of myself, like mm-hmm. the soccer instincts. Those are things that I feel have worn off over time. And so that's my coach, Giannis in Greece. And then with Dag and Monica, I'm starting to, access and feel muscles that I've never felt before. And they're really, it's posture related muscles, but I can now flex like the muscles around my spine, just like I might flex my bicep. And I've never been able to do that before. Whoa! Like just to flex, I'm like doing it right now and I've never felt that muscle. Mm. And so what they've done, and it's because we have time to do this, like we have time to start a little bit back to basics of like, can I hold myself in a better position to sustain what I believe and they believe is a perfectly sustainable practice of running for longer. So they really have helped me believe that running is something I'm meant to be doing. Cause I think sometimes runners eventually in their career are like, maybe I can't do this anymore. Maybe it's too hard or your body's worn out. Uh I just want to work on supporting a movement that humans are meant to do. Um, so it's been a lot of um, mind shifting to focusing on muscles I never knew I had. That's fascinating. I need to know more about this guy. We'll talk more afterwards because yeah. I, I, I need a little bit more of that in my life. Yeah. And I think as athletes, you you want to. It's natural to kind of want to double down on your strengths and and everybody's so concerned about making sure that they're maximizing their fitness or getting their volume in and their speed work and all of that. And it's, 
especially as you age, it's those pesky, you know, little yeah. things that um, become much more important and they're so annoying. But and, if you do yeah. them and they're pretty easy to do, you become a much more robust, resilient, um, injury-proof athlete. Yes, and, and I've always found that when you can, and to be in person with someone is a really big, I mean, here we are talking about this in, in this time, but it's so with a coach or with strength work, like doing things remotely is, it's just, there's something about being in person with someone. I mean, I'm sure that's yeah. why you're doing this right now with me in person. Like it's different. Yeah, and it, it is. It's And it's, it makes it tricky and you have to be safe and respect protocols and things like that. But there is a huge, sorry, I didn't mean to step on your words, but it is, you know, the, the interpersonal connection is so important. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And um, it's, yeah, what's, well, the, yeah, it's, I'm excited to talk to you more about it because essentially it's a little bit contrary. Most people are like, everybody's unique. Everyone needs different things and this and that. And their philosophy, Dag and Dr. Monica, is more like, actually, we're a lot more like cars than we think. And mm. we should be able to like support this structure and do this thing. And there is a blueprint and we can, if we strengthen certain muscles that you didn't know you had, Right. you can support the this speaking of, you, you don't wanna be unique when it comes to like body and injury things. And uh -huh. I think that's what's been so comforting is they're like, no, you're not unique. You right. just- Well, we all have the same you know. bones and muscles. Exactly. We start there. Exactly, right? exactly. Wow. So it's been really helpful. And I like working with people who have a diverse perspective. So like a lot of the work they do is with tennis players and football players. Mm. And I think I've worked with a lot of running specialist people and that's been helpful, but sometimes it's refreshing to step outside and, and just- Mix it up a little bit. Yeah, and just look at the body, not not just- Right. Yeah. yeah. How much of the running is on pavement versus trails? Oh, I love trails. I mean, why did I move to the valley? Because I wanted to soak up all the trails. 818, baby. I love it. So <laughs> I try to run soft um, for, uh, all easy runs. I end up needing to go on a track or on roads for some of these workouts because we, I have to train my body to do certain, to handle certain right. surfaces. Um, but I'm on soft and on trails as much as I can. Mm. And I, I love it. I love, I love how undiscovered the trails of LA seem to be. I know that there are people running here, but it's not something that people talk about in the world. It's crazy to me because the trail system, the amount of like untouched land in Los Angeles is pretty extraordinary, but it's kind of blind to the casual observer who's just driving on the freeway. Like you see the hills over there, but then when you're actually up there, like, yeah, there's a few runners and now with gravel bikes, there's more people on bikes, but overall, like there's barely anybody up there. And you could be up in Topanga State Park and it's like natural land for as far as you can see. And you're right in the middle of Los Angeles. It makes Central Park look like a speck 
compared to what's available here. And quote when you're up him, there, okay. What's that? I said, quote him. Yeah. I, people I mean, when you're up there, you're like, why isn't everybody up here? Yeah, like, yeah. there's no for such a densely populated urban metropolis. I'll see like three people, you know, yeah. in like over a course of multiple hours. Yeah, and I feel that the greatest gift that people have given me here, and that you could give someone if you're if you're interested in running or trails or walking, is to show them a trail. Like mm. I just to because you don't know that they're there, right? right? And I, I'll be, you know, I'll call myself out on that. Like I lived here for years before I ever went and explored any of it. And then when I did, I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm loving it. I feel it's my, it's a forever place for me. And uh, I've met friends through the trail system, like while on the trail, mm -hmm. I've met friends. Um, and it's just like a treasure trove. I love the early mornings and the in the sunsets are the best, right? Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it is a good way to get to know a city is is on the trails. I think. Yeah. Well, we got to end this shortly here. I don't want to be too indulgent with your time, but before I let you go, I think a good way to end it is with just a few sort of bravey thoughts for the person who's listening, who's maybe feeling stuck or struggling or feels like they're not entitled to have a dream or yeah. that aspirational life that they seek, you know, just feels too inaccessible. Well, to, to you, bravey listening <laughs> in, I take your dreams seriously, even if you do not. So you're allowed to take it seriously as well. I think also, Bravey, the way that you feel right now will probably not be how you feel forever, even if it seems like you will. I think that would have been a nice thing for someone to tell me. Uh, I think my dad sort of did tell me when I was feeling really down, uh, but I didn't believe him. Um, so I hope that helps. And just know that we're satellite teammates. <laughs> I love it. Sometimes people That's just great. want a teammate. I am in love with everything <laughs> that you are about. You just delight me. And I'm so pleased that you took the time to come Thank here and share today. Uh, I, I love- I wanna tell you more about our film projects too. Please, you're just gonna come fun. over for dinner and I'm gonna subject you to a lot of vegan food, whether you like it or not. I, one of my training partners is um, vegan and I lived with her in Mammoth for a month uh -huh. and I learned so much. Um, and Jeremy has not to like, but Jeremy is technically not supposed to eat like dairy, for example. Right. But I just, we didn't understand how simple that shift would be until I lived with her and I, and I just saw what she was eating and just ate with her. Uh -huh. And that was really helpful. So we're more right, vegan well, than we used to be. To be continued. Perfect. And uh, I can't wait for your book to be out in the world and for everybody to enjoy what I'm enjoying right now. So nothing but mad love and respect for everything that you and Jeremy are about. And I can't wait to see what you, what you do next. We're gonna planted some seeds and those flowers are gonna sprout next year. Cool. In the Thank meantime, you. pick up Bravey at your fine 
independent bookstore or on Amazon because we're in a <laughs> pandemic. I didn't realize it was still being recorded. Poor yeah. Jeremy. I'm like, no, Jeremy has fine. a dairy allergy. And uh, if you want to learn more about Alexi, what, go to your website. You're easy to find on the internet. Yep. Alexipappas.com, at yep. Alexipappas. Anywhere else, anything else you want to alert people to? Just get that Bravey book. <laughs> All right, come back See and talk to trails. me again. I will. Thank you for having me. And thank you You're for very your welcome. belief in me. Thank that you is, for coming. It's huge. It's cool. Peace. Peace. Plants. Plants. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. For links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page on richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis. Portraits by Ali Rogers and Davey Greenberg. Graphic elements courtesy of Jessica Miranda. Copywriting by Georgia Whaley. And our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. You can find me at richroll.com or on Instagram and Twitter at richroll. I appreciate the love. I love the support. I don't take your attention for granted. Thank you for listening. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. <laughs>